People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's being ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome to Greenwashed. I'm Jaspreet here with my co-host Don Nicholson and we are very excited to have you on the show. Please remember our numbers for sending in your feedback is 2057. Our email is inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio and Gosh, your uh, feedback has come through quite loud and clear over the last week. We had two guests, Helen Mandeno, a farmer from South Waikato, and we had Snoopman, Steve mm-hmm. Edwards here. And wasn't it good to get some feedback on that one uh, of both of them? But this one uh, from Mark, he wrote, your interview with Snoopman, Edwards was one of the most informative I've listened to, and he needs to be in the highlight section. Well, he is. Uh, his knowledge and explanation of the current and historical events was beyond impressive. And I hope we have Steve on, uh, Snoop Man on a lot more times because he is very, very researched and uh, and he's clear in his arguments. I, I couldn't concur more with you, Mark. He's, he was a fantastic interview, a interviewee. And a great sense of history there. There is bits and pieces I heard that day, which I have, you know, you occasionally read those same plots in novels and uh, historical fiction and whatnot, but yeah, hindsight is a great thing. Yeah, it is, and yeah, you know, today one of today's guests is going to be speaking in a in a more general vein, but on similar sort of stuff. So look, let's we won't we won't highlight that just yet, but we'll get on to the next one from Sean, who wrote, "Love uh, the RCR, and I'm a foundation member. Been listening from day one." Uh, he was thinking about how the large supermarkets have a strong hold over farmers, and he goes on and. Uh, it's a long um, message, but I'll say this. I, I'm aware that the amount of food we produce can feed a lot more than 40 million people. Uh, it You'd be overfeeding the 40 million. You, let's say it can be 60 or 80 million people with the right amount of calorific intake, but we do import about 30% of our food as well. So just remember, we're an export-oriented country. Uh, just saying we're going to control the supermarket um, sort of pricing in New Zealand isn't going to cut it really. Um, we've got a lot more to think about than just local supply. But good yeah. good feedback. Good feedback. 
Mm. What else did we have? Uh, I just read down and Steve. The money created by the Reserve Bank and commercial banks is fictional, i.e. not lawful. A global mortgage default will remove the termites from society and return stolen property. I think he's referring to the fact that currency is now just printed, no longer gold-backed, mm. not backed by precious metal. Isn't it amazing, Don? That's, that's another way of thinking about it. Banks can print money. If you and I do, it's unlawful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, it's it's intriguing too. Uh, when when say I borrowed money thirty years ago, and you thought the end of the world was nigh because you were struggling, mm. now that same amount of money looks like peanuts, uh, and so they've inflated it away. And um, I don't know how to explain it clearly, but inflation is your friend in that scenario. If you've been increasing your asset base in that whole time, if you've been static, you're losing uh, a large amount of ground. And so devaluation of anything is a real problem. And I was, I was, I, I encourage our listeners to go back to uh, a Paul Brennan interview with Fazan Arani last week, where he talked about the interest rate pressures coming from the weakening New Zealand dollar and the government's position in all of that is is weakened in the bond market and so he was basically saying look forward to interest rates staying higher for longer now that's we talked about this what despondency last week <laughs> yeah that that makes me even more despondent because we've been there before and it's not a pleasant place yeah, we were even told a couple of years ago that oh, there'll be a blip up on interest rates. Um, I <laughs> used to be used to be in a um, director's role where our treasury advice was it won't be a big, it'll be a blip for 2022, but it'll ease straight back down. Well, that's yeah. now not happening. Of course, that was before the worst excesses of the lockdown. Um, that advice came in before all this stuff happened in New Zealand. But still, how wrong can the treasury advice be? Mm. Unbelievable. Yep. So, look, uh, that there's a lot of people talk about the currency, and they talk about, and I don't understand it, fiat currency, and um, and and there's a lot of knowledge about it. But we've got what we've got, and mm. I don't see any big um, willingness to change it. So, no, we're going to have to suck it up a lot longer. Yep, Marion Sutherland has commented. Helen Mandana was a brilliant guest on RCR. Thanks, guys. Uh, similar sentiments echoed by another message we got on the mobile service. Excellent yes. show. Your guest, Helen, time, has timely, albeit somewhat frightening perspective. The farmers will unite. Will they? Yeah. <laughs> yes, hoping they will. But yeah. uh, I think we need to go through a bit more economic pain before many more see the writing on the wall for what it is. But I agree. Helen was uh, was a great guest. She did not mince her words. And she's called a spade a spade. Mm, she did. And uh, it was good to have the feedback because she was very nervous. And uh, it was good to get her point across and for people to accept that um, she had a way yeah. of putting it across that that hit the mark. Mm. As another one came in about um, with regard to greenhouse gas emissions, this was from Stuart. I believe our emissions per capita is calculated on our population, e.g. 5 million for agriculture and maybe others. It should, should it not be based on the number of people we feed, feed globally? Uh, and he goes on, we've made the rules to the way um, they are. They're not to be changed. They were set a long time ago. I know what you're saying, uh, Steve, but uh, Stuart, sorry, but in the end, 
it would be like saying that an oil baron should pay um uh or base it on how wide and far his oil goes and clearly they don't uh oh. so um yeah I, I get your point but this is a, it's a convoluted system and it also don't if we start talking about that then yeah. we are doing what you don't want to we don't want to argue within the allowed narrative and we're dignifying a nonsense concept that's yeah, the problem that every time we talk about yeah matter yep and so then there's another one from our old friend Mike Meadows in Foxton um listen to Jamie McFadden and John Scarry two wonderful guests with so much knowledge uh he said it's hard to follow an act like in Plymer how do you get such people well we do put a bit of thought into getting people that um, are interesting of course um and he said thank you so much for making me think harder and considering even more aspects of what this wonderful den of vipers is trying to pass <laughs> off as good for us and so sustainable but then he goes on to say bring on Winston and his amazing candidates and make a difference for the better well there'll be some people that won't agree with you there uh, Mike but uh, there's no doubt Winston is back yeah we shall see where the fortunes fall in october uh, mm. mike also goes on to say just with and don i'm so glad we have the replays on the weekend played live best way to catch up these guests uh, i would never <laughs> <laughs> i would never like to piss just breath off in any way as she would probably hunt me down and give it to me with both barrels would i don't uh look i i no, look uh, mike she's quite meek uh, she's to- she's got me totally under the thumb uh come yeah. on john uh, i think you've got it. i think mike you're you're closer to right than wrong good lord uh, oh look i'm getting the glare i'm getting the glare <laughs> it is only the beginning of the show right now <laughs> on a monday morning don you've got 3 hours of yeah. yet Yeah so look let's talk about something a little more positive um mm. I really was heartened to see an old mate of mine Hugh Ritchie and Sharon Ritchie from Otani in Hawke's Bay when the Arable Farmer of the Year award for this year now they are big time farmers right into precision precision agriculture have been for years uh Hugh developed some of the first strip tillage systems in New Zealand in fact if it wasn't the first I'd be surprised so he knows how to do um modern precision agriculture and i know that his farm was absolutely decimated his lowland farm was decimated by the cyclone gabriel floods and he's taken a hell of a hit but you know i've watched him and i've read commentary about him and he just takes it on the chin um life's okay he'll he'll sort it out he's an innovator and a salt of the earth type um operator and nothing seems I know you'll be stressed to the max but nothing seems too hard for him and he and his family deserve all the accolades they can get as do his parents before him so reading that was the positive for the week for me um I'm not big on awards but I think if anyone deserved it he did no good to good to hear that and I mean when you have nothing else a positive attitude absolutely god knows we've seen this in the last uh, few years the way things have gone it's attitude always over anything else yeah that's that's right um you know people can get dragged down pretty easily and you know sometimes i'm inclined to talk like oh you're always negative don well no i always got out of bed and stood at my work i don't intend to drag people down it's uh it's an individual um 
I, I value individualism and, uh, you know, I, I hope people can get out of bed and with a spring in their step most days. Um, the sad thing is it's more difficult at the moment. And I was humiliating Jasper just before the show when I did a quote from uh, 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 Michael, Sir Michael Cullen. She's still angry um, when he talked about how he um, he got educated basically on the sheep's back. And this is what he said. He's, it's quoted in an article. He went to Christ College where he was a, a scholarship boy and it's funded by wealthy uh, benefactors. He said, I'm proud of the fact that my secondary education was not paid for by the taxpayers of New Zealand, but by the farmers of Canterbury and Hawke's Bay, uh, the rookie MP roared. I ripped them off for five years then and I shall get stuck into them again for the, in the next few years. And you analyse it Ooh. and that's what politicians, that's the... Um, What's the word? It's not, it's, that's almost the jealousy of a politician of the left. I can't believe anyone would say that in their maiden speech. I can't, but he did. Imagine the, the arrogance and the sheer disrespect, the disregard for the hardworking people who have, you know, funded but, this, these scholarships and whatever else got Michael Cullen there. And no. he then went on to have a career for what you said, Don, a quarter of I, a century. I think about 25 years, ended up Minister of Finance, Deputy Prime Minister, and sadly passed away a couple of years ago. I mean, uh, he he had a, a cancer that took him out, and it's sad for him and his family. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it was a, a vicious way to start your career, and he sort of laughed about it from then on. Well, it's no laughing matter today when you analyse that, if that's saying, and, and i sorry, I should say that I think that same sort of ethos attitude, attitude is permeating a fair chunk of today's parliament and local government, actually. It's, uh, I mean, uh, listeners, as would be obvious, Don often has to fill in for my gaps in New Zealand history occasionally. And, uh, I, I still find it hard to believe that someone can say that in their maiden speech mm. and uh, still continue on their merry way. And never, I mean, you the right. fact that you remember it, Don, which year did he say this? Oh, that's obviously it's probably late, mid to late 90s. Um, late or 90s. no, early 90s, perhaps. Uh, look, there's lots of things politicians say, and you would have gotten away with them in those years. You imagine if I said something like that, um, uh, when I was president of Fed Farmers, uh, it just would have been sl the media would have slaughtered you. Uh, so you and and you know today you can't have a word out of place in mainstream media or they go after you. I mean, I watched I watched the Nation uh, yesterday and there was um, the act uh, climate spokesman Simon Court trying to be destroyed by the interviewer um, who tried to take apart David Seymour a couple of weeks ago. Well, you know. These, you've got no friends in mainstream media when you're trying to tell a simple story. They try to do the gotcha moments all the time. Uh, it never used to be like that. It just didn't. You just you could say a bit of edgy stuff and get away with it. Now you can't. These are the same people who got what three hundred thousand dollars, wasn't it? Uh, unbelievable. To put climate stories in, you know. So the government, I yep. call this the government buying the media. It was horrible, wasn't it? And that's only, to me, that's just the start of it. If we found that much, there's likely to be more. Mm. Yep. Yep. Totally.
And this is what we've come to as a country. The media used to be the fourth yeah. state. Yeah. There's little wonder that, you know, there is all this alternative media, RCR, and uh, you have Rebel News in Australia. We had some of uh, the people from Rebel News, Avi Emini and others, uh, join RCR mm. last week. This is what's propped us up. And the way media is going even now, it is. I I really struggle to see any light there. Well, at the end of that tunnel. Agreed. Agreed. It's very difficult. I the, I speak to enough people who don't watch television, New Zealand news at all, don't listen to the radio, are basically doing uh, limited social media um, mm. listening. So slowly they're being shut off from everything. They just they're so turned off by it. Uh, they've had enough. And I don't. I hope it doesn't happen to social media and uh, in, in sort of podcasts that we do. But think about this: the other day, I watched on Fox News the Republican nominee debate minus Donald Trump. They said they got uh, about twenty million viewers at the time, but on X, formerly Twitter, um, the Trump Tucker Carlson interview is reported to have had over two hundred million views. <laughs> now. Which was the more sport? I quite like watching the um, the video, uh, you know, the the Fox News one because it was clearly uh, Vivek Ramaswamy um, was the unique player there, and I really like the guy. He's very intelligent and articulate, mm. and all those mainstream politicians just couldn't cope with him because he was the most energetic and and direct speaker that was there. Um, so, you know, maybe. Mate, there, there's room for all, but you, yeah, having all sides of the story talked about is key, and that's what RCR prides itself on. Absolutely. Mm. So, so today we've got a couple of guests lined up. It's a couple of people have very kindly agreed to share uh, some of their uh, insights with us. Now, listeners, if you remember, hark back to April, Dawn and I had interviewed uh, our first guest from the US. Tom DeWeese. Tom DeWeese is the president of the American Policy Center, the author of the book uh, called The Activist Handbook to Agenda 21. And he is someone who, and I'll, I'll actually go back to what media MSM in the US describe him as. Tom DeWeese built a career of issuing scary warnings about Agenda 21 a completely voluntary United Nations set of principles for sustainable resource management. Where others see sensible environmental guidelines, DeVise finds sinister land-grabbing socialist UN initiatives. So we had Tom on in uh, late April. You can go back and uh, search for the replays under the Greenwashed tab on our website, realitycheck.radio. And today we have his... Uh, Vice President Kathleen Marquat joining us from the US again. And Kathleen is just another firebrand on the same lines of Tom. And I can see why they worked together for over two decades now. In fact, uh, some of the earliest uh, bits of work from Kathleen that I found on the web were from the 90s mm. when they were talking about, you know, all of these uh, so called voluntary guidelines. Not being voluntary at all. And we, we know that, don't we? We saw Jacinda promising in 2017 at the Gatekeepers Conference. Uh, 
that New Zealand will be the first country in the world to put the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals into its very legislation. So those so-called voluntary ones, not quite so voluntary. Yep, all there. So Kathleen does give us a good um, hour of a time and um, what a what a bundle of energy she was in a hard case as well. So uh, look, I hope um, I hope uh, she's pleased with the interview when she replays it herself. I'm sure she will. And we'll have Tom back on sometime in the future as well, I'm sure. But uh, I, I do encourage listeners to go to the American Policy Center website and just uh, learn about stuff that we we haven't got enough time to tell them all about mm. everything that's in there. But for instance, I've come up with one uh, cancel culture coming to a conclusion take some esg plus deib and add uh cbdc and finish <laughs> off with the 15 minute city and it's it's all there it's sort of a glossary of all the terms you need um i thought it was fantastic so yeah yeah so, but but before we go in for a break and come back with kathleen's <laughs> interview dawn has got some music oh, some very gosh. relevant music don't you don uh, it's funny. I mean, just shows you my age. But in 1962, um, Mel- Melvina Reynolds came up with this song, and she was an activist singer, as it turned out. And she was actually reasonably aged at that point. But mm. she came up with uh, "Little Boxes," um, a song, "Little Boxes," made of ticky tacky on the hillside. And it's it's got our little lyrics in there you need to listen to. But it's very appropriate, perhaps, for a 15 minute city discussion. So, yeah, course, I, I am actually going to read out the lyrics to one of one of the verses, and the people at the houses all went to the university where they were put in boxes and they came out all the same. And there's doctors and lawyers and business executives and they're all made out of ticky-tacky and they all look just the same. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Greenwash. You're with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. Our number for texting in is 2057, emails at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Now, keen listeners might remember a few months ago, we had a guest zoom in from the US, Tom DeWeese, the president of the American Policy Center. And today we are honored to have with us the Vice President of the American Policy Center, Kathleen Marquardt. And I am really thrilled, looking forward to this interview, not the least because I have nothing but the utmost admiration for someone who's been fighting for personal private property rights for nearly all her life. It's Your first video is nearly three decades ago on the internet, Kathleen. So welcome. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. And it's great to speak to people on the other side of the world. Isn't it? And isn't it amazing that we seem to be having, regardless of how geographically apart we are, the very same problems? I, gee, I wonder why. <laughs> and you were going to come to New Zealand about 30 years ago and live. Um, you know, you, you could, you're living the same stuff as we're living right now. So, uh yeah, we've got a lot to talk about. We've got a very uh, wide remit today. So, yeah, what uh, what's driving um, your passion, Kathleen? I mean, clearly you're a freedom fighter and an activist, and um, yes, you know, it can take your whole life, as we know. It uh, it eats it eats into you, and you can't can't move on from it. So, the 
what what is it that's actually driving you to be so tenacious? Um, well, it started out. I was just um, my my daughter came home from school and said and was in tears and she didn't want to go back to school. And finally, I got it out of her. Uh, she didn't want to go to school because the the teacher said that. Uh, that a speaker in her school came in and said, I was a murderer because I hunted. And I got into the animal rights fight back then. And it then I started working with people all over the country that were fighting the forest industry. You know, they were cutting down trees. Oh, that's horrible. Spiking trees. They were fighting all the things fighting the fishermen, fighting the cattlemen. And so I realized it was all over freedom and the right to private property. And if you don't have the right to private property, you're a slave because you only own your thoughts. You don't even own your body. So I've been in this fight and I've been fighting it for, I guess, two reasons. One, because I believe in it and I was raised to believe that we should have freedom, that that we should be autonomous in our own beings. And because I have two children and now I have three grandchildren, so I'm much more in this fight because I want them to live in, I'd like them to live in the great America that I used to live in, but I I don't, but I'd like to see it come back. I don't think it will, but I want them to at least have the right to be free. So so all the patriotism and, and the fighting by patriots over years and generations, you're feeling is um, under massive threat. It looks like that from my side of the world, but um, you know, is that an understatement? <laughs> A massive threat? I'd say we're so close to being no longer free. I mean, we're people like you and me are where our stuff is being erased from from the net already. You know, they're closing us up. We're being accused of being horrible, evil and being against all these good things. But here's here's the biggest thing that I just believe in freedom. I believe in moral absolutes. Right is right and wrong is wrong. When when my daughter was like 13, she was having trouble in school and, and they had me go to this sociologist or someone. And she says, well, the problem with your daughter is she sees things in black and white. And I said, well, if it's gray, that means it's got black in it, right? So she said, oh, the problem with your daughter is her mother. Mm-hmm. So you can see where I've been all my life. I And I know that the world is gray, but right now we're getting so dark gray, we can't, people, most people can't even see through it. Yeah, and uh, that language that your your daughters um, have been subjected through through their schooling, and now your grandchildren, likely you sort of wonder um, how how it got to be that way. That language matters, and that the common sense that we thought was common now has a new tinge and a new meaning for these people that are influencing our children. So. You know, Jasper and I are aware of in the UK and it's spread to New Zealand and no doubt in the States, there's um, 
concepts called nudge units and be, you know, behavioral insights and the like. So this is where I think uh, maybe you have an opinion. Perhaps I'll put it that way. You have an opinion on that? <laughs> Nudging? Yeah, I, that that whole concept is unbelievable. It's bad enough that they try to tell us that we have to, you know, in the old days, that was 30 years ago or so, you could believe what you believed, I can believe what I want to believe, and they could believe what we want to believe. And you could say so, and you just say, well, I can, we'll agree to disagree. But nowadays, if you aren't following the script, if you aren't following the ESG, the environmental, social, global stuff, and believing that uh, global warming, excuse me, it's now climate change since it didn't <laughs> warm, but global warming is destroying the earth. So if you start, if you're out there and you start talking about it, they're going to nudge you to start saying the right thing or shut up. That's, and I have a, I'm one of those people that instead of just shutting up, I get madder <laughs> and say. <laughs> Fantastic. And so uh, I, I noted in one of the uh, articles I read, it's talk, uh, talk about sitting with the devil. And um, it it's, it's a line that I probably think we should keep in our minds because that's what it appears like uh, to me. Uh, and I never thought like this, I, I never realized I'd have to think like I am now. 20 years ago, even though uh, uh, no, I sort of, when I was the president of Fed Farmers in New Zealand, we had this concept called, you know, the, the prime, prime reason for us being was to maintain authority over property uh, for our members. And we just haven't done it. We just haven't done it. And in fact, it was dismissed from the um, lexicon of Fed Farmers at the time when I left. So it's it's a pretty sad day, isn't it, when uh, we are sitting with the devil, uh, the people that don't want to acknowledge, acknowledge property rights. So how how did it get so bad, Kathleen? It got so bad for one reason is because everybody was working hard and just trying to live their life. And I'll live, I'll do what I do, and you do what you want to do, and all will be well. But we didn't see. All this stuff was happening. And I used to feel a lot more guilty about not seeing it. But the more I study history and find out the truth about World War One, World War Two, you know, all the different things and what really happened then and what we read about are so different and what they have in the schools now. I mean, that they're erasing all our history, but what is what was really happening is they have erased our history for years and not just ours, yours too. Um, and, and our children are not learning it. So our children are being brainwashed and we don't realize it. And our children are, are being told all these lies and, and like, you know, we shouldn't eat meat because for, and they have a gazillion reasons, you know, meat is murder. Um, which is total hogwash, but they're they're being fed so many lies, and we haven't kept up because the parents you're no longer allowed. You, they used to have the PTAs, 
Parent Teacher Association. But I'm sorry, but parents aren't allowed in those meetings anymore because the parents might know something that they're not supposed to know. So it's been it's been in our education system, in our government, our government a lot longer than the education system, but even in our churches, it's everywhere. They're pushing all this garbage and, and nobody's being awake. And now that people are finally waking up, they're either being threatened or bought out or, you know, just it's, I I have no idea all the things that are happening, but it's, it's um, overwhelming. It is. And some of your earliest videos, you know, you speak about your background as a hunter and you've spoken about how much of this began under the guise of environmentalism, environmentalism being the new religion. And out here, a recent example is, uh, you know, we have a, a gulf, the Horaki Gulf around Auckland, the North uh, Island of New Zealand. And over time, over the last I'd say a decade nearly, there have been noises being made. You know, we need to protect this. We need to do something. They've taken a a large part of uh, many of Auckland's regional parks, moved them into this Gulf Forum, pushed a trust. Now they're talking of corridors through it. And suddenly, even the, you know, local fishing practices, it's not happened right now, but you know where this is going to go. In New Zealand, much of this is also very uh, and I have a grudging admiration for this, very admirably assisted by the fact that you can just divide a wedge saying indigenous practices and Western practices. Now, this is a country I immigrated to 15 years ago. To the outsider's eyes, as mine were then in 2009, it seemed an egalitarian society. Things seemed to be all right. You wouldn't believe the state of our country now. You just wouldn't believe. There has been, as I saw, and I thought that time, over a hundred years at least of peaceful coexistence, most people today will have heritage from Europe, from uh, you know all parts of the world, Asia, most continents, and they might have a bit of the indigenous in them. But suddenly, we now have a race-based healthcare system. So people are identifying as what will give them priority. The same thing is happening in our regional parks Suddenly, you cannot get permission for anything unless the treaty that was signed in 1840s between the crown that time and the local Maoris is honored. There's no principles to it, but you have the average person being made to shut up, be quiet, because you don't want to be seen out as a racist. Do you see similar tactics out at your end of the world where you are, you know, suddenly everything is racist? (laughs) <laughs> you haven't been watching our country fall <laughs> apart. You know, this is so incredible is racism. They go, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's so incredible how they have made Black Lives Matter. The We didn't have racial problems. We have very few racial problems up until they decided, okay, we're going to have Black Lives Matter. And then, you know, anybody... Anybody who isn't white is okay. Now, if you're white, oh, if you're a white male, go dig a hole and bury yourself because you don't you don't count anymore. This is we're just we're so overwhelmed with that. But that's one of the things. It's a divide and conquer. It's divide and conquer. That do you think that 
all these people that are being allowed things now. I mean, one of the big things that they're doing, and maybe they're doing it there, but I don't know about, but they keep adding more people, all of the people that are coming over our borders illegally, they get $3,000 immediately, they get paid, they get their food, they get put in big hotel rooms for free. I mean, it is incredible. But what what they're, and that's a combination of, like I say, everything has is layered. Part of that is so it can bankrupt America. Well, we're already bankrupt, but they're still printing money just for the fun of it. But what it is, is to divide and conquer us, to make us hate the other person, to make us not, you know, and and we've never been like that. Well, we maybe we were in the early days. And even then, I don't, America wasn't like that. Most of the people that signed, signed the Constitution wanted a slavery free, but so I think it was two or three states didn't, so they didn't put that in there, but it came later. But the whole thing is, we've worked together, lived together. So many, I know, I live in Tennessee now, so I, I meet many, many families that are interracial, and nobody cares, nobody knows, except those that don't, that don't, that want to separate us in order to do the evil they're trying to do, which is destroy us. So so it, Jasper and I both have family in California near San Francisco, um, and it seems that they don't um, quite know how to cope with what's going on. They see it, but they don't know uh, if they've got any influence or ability to stop it. Uh, my brother often talks about how these illegals uh, crossing the border um, uh, the attempt to get them voting is part of the game. Do you think that's, is that real? And and second point, uh, just can you just give us a wee bit of a genesis of Black Lives Matter and the people behind it? Because so two questions in there. Okay, so let me start with the second one. Black mm. Lives Matter <clears throat> was not, I believe, it was set up by non, mostly non-Black people. It was a Soros-based thing. The Sunshine Group, I believe they're called, set it up to be this faction, just, you know, like like Antifa. Um, so it's, it's, it's a tool. They're all tools to be used against us. Everything is a tool. As far as California, you say you have somebody in San Francisco? Just in mind a bit. I was living there, and I have to tell you, um, it was very, very liberal back then. But now, I mean, they have they have stores in California that people are allowed to raid. They raided them and stole three hundred thousand dollars in one fat rich store on one day and in one store that i read about that two of the employees were trying to stop this shoplifter and they were fired you're not allowed it's like like remember when i said moral absolute mm. there's right and there's wrong well today in america wrong is right and right needs to be buried so that's what's going on. And California is leading the pack. Um, when I lived there, people did poop on the streets, but it wasn't legal. But now they pay people 
$80,000 a year to clean up poop on the streets because now they tell people, see, they're trying to destroy California. California was the breadbasket of America. And California fed the could feed the world back then. Now it's all being destroyed with environmental rules for a kangaroo rat or Delta smelt. It's the the problem is to cover this issue we would have to talk for about the next 17 hours <laughs> yeah it's 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 just not with you either actually sadly the 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 west is eating itself up and we see it you see it um and it's had sad job to just keep talking about it i suppose but um yeah the black lives matter stuff that that hit uh, minneapolis i think was uh, the 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 nerve center of it that sort of all of a sudden built into our country as well and we had we had our sports team taking a knee i'd never even heard what taking a knee was <laughs> until then i mean that's how naive i am and uh and it's it's just it's just eating us up we just I, don't need it i can't believe when they do that and you know coming from an army officer's daughter's background for me it is simply disrespecting your flag but that's what it is it's to destroy the meaning of your flag the meaning of what your country was built on this is literally they call it deconstruction it's destruction it's marxism they're trying to destroy everything that is good in the world so they can control it the problem is when everything collapses i don't know if they really have another planet to fly to but they're destroying this whole planet and who's going to take care of them because they don't know how to take care of the, all these leaders the, klaus schwab and uh, all the rest of them who's gonna who's there i don't see anybody going to take care of the useful idiots that they're going to use until they get robots that can do it mm, i i i myself i mean your flag regardless of which country you are in i think for most places is where is in which a body of someone who's you know fallen a fallen soldier comes wrapped in how the hell do you take a knee at that i have never understood i am someone who's taken on new zealand citizenship so india doesn't allow dual citizenship but if i see an indian flag or any flag of any country you stand up you don't do this and that's, that's right. just the way i've been raised but going going back to now the environmentalism we in new zealand are seeing an absolute dizzying rise of renewable energy don has worked in the power sector so he's far more of an expert than i am but right now what they are doing is bankrupting us here and we are already a bankrupt country just like most of the west for absolutely nothing tangible to show for it california again seems to be in the forefront of this doesn't it you but they're sort of the poster boys for what they're trying to do since since they have so much they've had so much going on there and hollywood is a big a big part of it because hollywood makes movies and you know they make movies that show that are programming the people to believe certain things they're paid to make movies to support black lives matter or antifa or mm. or environmentalism you know the 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 environmentalists that uh that they don't care i mean they basically said we don't care what the facts are as long as we get what we want 
Unreal. Unreal. Well, look, it's uh, it's sad, isn't it? Um, New Zealand's saying to its people that, oh, to get to net zero by 2050, it'll cost $42 billion. But we have a Cambridge, and sorry, Jasperita, I called uh, Michael Kelly from Oxford the other day. He's from Cambridge. <laughs> yeah, um, right. uh, he's saying $550 billion. Australia yesterday talked about their net uh, 2050 targets, and they've got more coal generation than New Zealand because uh, we're 85% renewable already, but they're talking $9 trillion. And then on a um, show recently, I saw John Kerry debating with a senator saying that uh, we need to carbon capture and store. And the senator put him put it on John Kerry that uh, to do what he wanted at the volume he wanted and at the current price of the CO2, which is a nonsense in itself, uh, would cost $1.6 quadrillion. Now, now, you've already got, uh, I think, public debt of $30 trillion. Uh, These numbers, I just they just roll off people's tongues. I mean, Kerry thinks it's okay. You're, you're, as the Secretary of State, he thinks it's, um, or, or some name like that, some title, he thinks it's okay. And he, says, he said, oh, the Senator's being disingenuous or words to the effect. Well, sorry, these numbers just roll, roll off the tongue of these people as if nothing matters. And we do just keep printing money. When does that sort of has to have to stop? Because that's going to be that's going to be the end game here. The the would you suggest the corporate elites are going to swallow everything they can while it's being devalued? Yeah, they are. I mean, I think it's going to end when they decide it's going to end. Because look, America, the U.S. is pr- printing money for. We have nothing to back it up, and we've had nothing to back our money since Nixon, which was a long time ago. So it's going to crash, but they're going to decide when, because it should have crashed, I don't know, several years ago at least with with how much money we really have left. But it's, it's, you know, this net zero, do you know how much carbon is, is in our atmosphere, what the percentage is? zero point is point zero four percent we need carbon for the photosynthesis in order for plants to grow what are we going to eat for just to live we need it but they want to take it out of the atmosphere and and what and and this is a twofold thing it's to bankrupt us it's maybe threefold it's to take away private property because this carbon pipeline did did you talk about it with tom should i um, no we didn't please expand on it okay this carbon pipeline runs through i forget how many states five or six or seven and they have they dig down i think five feet they take away all the topsoil and then and then they're going to put this pipeline in to take it to a state and they're going to pump it and they're going to uh, put it in caves and things that are underground. Um, but it's it's all a farce because all of the all of their papers that they have on it, it really isn't going to work, but it's going to work to do what they want to do is to take private property and destroy the ground that you can plant crops in or raise cattle on. Um, and I mean, they've had they they've had people they had surveyors that 
walked into this man's house, this man's house, mm. because he, said he didn't want them on his property. And this guy walks right into their house as if, and the guy says, well, we're going to take your property. And it's, it's, this is one of the biggest boondoggle, stupid, stupid things that cannot ever be done. And I'm sure they know it can't be done. And they've already spent billions and billions on it. And it's going nowhere. But it's doing two things. It's like I say, destroying the land, destroying people's property rights, and bankrupting us. So what else do they want? Well, it, it certainly doesn't pass the, the decency test and, and the common sense test. It's interesting about 2008, probably I was asked, uh, my knowledge of carbon capture and storage. And I said, yeah, well, I do it every day. I'm producing animals. And, um, you know, it's yeah. uh, it's in the meat and milk and uh, and it's sequestered in my trees and all sorts of stuff. And I said, CO2, great to have. Uh, more of it, please. And this lady never bothered to interview me again. Um, and she still runs a website uh, on, on uh, climate alarmism. So you just realise the stupidity of their agenda. But, you know... <laughs> In New Zealand, we're being tied up in knots over the farmers are over, over methane and nitrous oxide emissions. Uh, I don't think it's quite happened to you yet, although John Kerry again is talking about we've got to get rid of the beef, we've got to get rid of those those lemon beef cows. But we've got uh, scientists like William Happer and William Van Weingarten and Co and Coonan and Lindzen and many others talking about the irrelevancy of some of this stuff, and of course. Um, you quote Happer in one of your papers uh, with regard to the discussion of the global methane hub. But Happer in 2019 wrote, proposals to pl place harsh, harsh restrictions on methane emissions because of warming fears are not justified by the facts. And they highlight there that um, the net forcing increase of CH4 and CO2 increases about 0.05 watts per square metre per year. All other things being equal, this would cause a temperature increase of about 0.012 centigrade a year. So we've got all this knowledge, and the argument is, oh, that 2019 paper wasn't peer-reviewed. Well, they've done papers in 22 that are peer-reviewed. Um, but why is it that uh, revered scientists are all of a sudden um, pilloried or ignored because we can't even get our pharma lobby groups in New Zealand to acknowledge these guys. We had Dr. Tom Sheehan in New Zealand recently, who all he did was really talk about the Happer and Van Wingarden and, and other papers. And the media in New Zealand ignored us 100%, barring a little local paper. Um, mainstream certainly ignored us. Secondly, um, uh, the organisations that are purported and expected to represent farmers ignored them. The co-op leadership, the boards of all the major co-ops, and we have one called Fonterra, which is the largest um, cross-border trader of milk products in the world, um, ignored them. And we're about, we've got these bodies, sorry, this is a long statement, we've got these bodies attempting or, or almost salivating, it seems, at the prospect of putting a tax on themselves as world It'll be a world first, an organisation saying, or, or an industry saying, we want you to tax us. That's what they're saying. And New Zealand farmers, we've now got some farmers saying, that's okay. Um, as it's far as the leaders go, one, they are either threatened, blackmailed, 
or bought out. I mean, stupid doesn't go. stupid doesn't come into it. <laughs> um, well, I'm sure stupid does. Uh, I'm sorry, stupid sure comes in on the lower end, but you know, in and in, in the carbon pipeline, one of we had this governor. I think South Dakota. Um, her name was Governor Nomi. And she was all against it and everything. And she has her legislature ready to squash it. And she won't accept the bill now. Now you have to ask, gee, what happened? So she either got bought off, threatened, or threatened with blackmail. So this is what is going on. And mainstream media, you know, they're, they're doing this dis and misinformation stuff. If you put out misinformation, they're going to erase it. And, and so um, we're being erased every day. We, you put out something that is the truth that, that has the truth behind it. And you can have all the papers in the world you want, but it isn't going to show up. Several years ago, you could go on the internet and find every article there was everywhere on both sides. Now you get, I, I mean, I have dug to the, used to be, you'd never get to the end. If you were looking for a subject, I'd go through 80, 90 scrolls and never get to the end because everything was there now you might go through 30 40 things on one subject and it it's all has its slant it is not my slant and that's it we're mm -hmm. we're being erased we're being erased from everything out there so so do you think that state governor is being threatened with uh less aside from what you've just said do you think the threat of debanking is part of it yeah you just won't get funding for your state if you don't tick these boxes i have no idea what what got her but let me tell you she's been got, got she's longer, she's no longer on our side yeah. and it's hard to believe kirsty noem i remember following her from here last year yeah. she was elected with the i believe the highest ever margin in south dakota she's a rancher herself and uh what is that conservatives conference that all these guys go to i'm forgetting the name but i remember her speech there yes Quite, uh, uh, why did you have to ask me yeah. I it. yeah no no that's that's fine but, i but she's yes she was fantastic and now it's Nothing. so it's, it's scary it's scary but so, so what does nirvana look like for these um globalists uh, what do you think nirvana looks like i think you have explained it but let's just sort of try and nail it right down to to where it ends you really want me to say i mean if you look at what what went on at davos and and remember when they built that big accelerator under the underground excel mm -hmm. and they had all that coming out and they had all these weird people all dressed weirdly doing all of these mystic dancing and everything to introduce it and at at davos you hear about all the high-paid call girls and probably cow call boys and <laughs> they have all these fancy meals i mean i think they're really dissolute people and and i just and 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 you have to remember um 
Jeffrey, what's his name's island? You know, Epstein. Yes. And all these people were flying to it. I mean, you look at all these. I'm sorry that I'm saying this, but this is you asked me a question I've never been asked before, but this is how they act. And 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 you have Yuri. um, Yeah. Harari, that one. Yeah. He's saying, you know, that we're going to we're there. Technocracy is such a big thing now. And we're going to be half robots we're, you know they're going to control our minds and everything i just i'm glad i'm older yeah well like i i've i've used this term on the show several times called neo-feudalism but last week uh we had a guest who talked it uh he talked of techno-feudalism and yes. i think he's more accurate than than me so um that's a phrase that we probably need to unbundle a bit better but you know so, so moving on um, for a little bit more onto the city planning and uh, the the controls around fifteen minute cities and and you've written about this stuff. I mean, I've I've just shared with um, Jaspreet a um, song from nineteen sixty two uh, from a lady called um, Let me get this Malvina Reynolds, and it was called Little Boxes on the Hillside, Little Boxes Made of Ticky Tacky. And it goes on to talk to, to there's three or four verses. The second one, and all the people in the houses all went to university where they were all put in boxes and they came out all the same, the doctors and lawyers. And it goes on like that. Now, this was 1962. And this lady or the person who wrote the lyrics seemed to be on the money. Uh, and of course, I have been to San Francisco and I do see the little boxes on the hillsides. Um, so... They weren't made of ticky-tacky, but they probably weren't made that that well. But now we've got high-rise uh, ticky-tack um, uh, condos and, and the like, Expect sorry, not condos, um, tenement buildings around the world. Things have evolved. What's, what's the fear? I mean, theoretically, there's a lot of young people like the idea of living in um, uh, close confine, confines and having everything at their beck and call. I mean... You don't need to go out and have exercise. You'll have a gym in the basement and you'll just go down there and um, that'll be it. You won't need to go out and get fresh air. It'll all be great. <laughs> Let me tell you. Uh, um, yes, I think they. her poem was so fantastic because I, I have a very good friend that has um, a Patriots organization out in California. Well, now he's in, in Arizona. Um, had two children that he raised absolutely perfectly. They, I mean, they built his website, everything. One now works for, I forget whether it's Facebook or Alphabet or whatever. Um, send your kids to college and I guarantee you, you'll, unless you've really, really, really done your job, they're going to be, end up being the people that are wanting to live in 15-minute cities. And, and what people don't understand about why they want you in the city, besides the city has all the things like the lights, your refrigerator, your stove, the smart meter, everything to, to control you and to watch everything you do. And the main purpose, in my humble opinion, of 
putting people into these cities is so they can totally control you, not just you can't go beyond where you can walk or ride a bike 15 minutes, but where you can't go visit your relatives in another state or anything without permission. And you, you know, and if you're like me and you don't want to use the smart cards and all that stuff, you're not going anywhere. But it's to control you so that when they decide to shut things down, all they have to do is turn off the power and the water and the and the um, food supply. Food supply and mm. You're gone. And and what is what amazes me is why people do, in in 19, I forget, 62 or 60 something, um, Alexander Gutenhoff wrote a book, The Ideal Communist City. And if you read it, it's a smart city. It's a 15 minute city. It has everything that that they've been planning since then. It was written by the by the communists when they took over east germany how they were going to build the buildings in east germany the stores and groceries and restaurants on the first floor then you live on the next floors and then you work up above and there's a green space over here and you know uh, there's and, a vertical garden somewhere and they make you feel oh it is so you are surrounded by nature I, I see the same nonsense around here. You are, you've got a perfectly lovely piece of wilderness and there will be garish colors of slides, parks. Suddenly they want to tame it, putting pathways and all sorts of safety, all sorts of safety, uh, you know, gear there, high-vis this and this and that. And I'm like, what What are you doing here? We have had the similar things, you know, happening in New Zealand, but it's the point is they use different terminology, don't they? What's a smart city? What's a 15-minute city? What's a clean, uh, safe street? What's a quiet street? What's a London's ULEZ, the ultra-low emission zone? And people, we have, I think times are hard. The cost of living has gone through the roof. COVID has not been kind over the last three years. You've had you know, the social fab fabric of the world torn apart. And people can just barely afford to put food on the table and a roof over their family's heads. Who has time to go down these paths? It it gets and it's it's hard to get it's easy to get, I should say, overwhelmed because some days you don't know which enemy you are fighting. And this is one thing I want to ask you, Kathleen. How have you managed to keep up this enthusiasm for well over three decades? We were trying to get to you a few days earlier. But as your email came, you said, I was out at a meeting with Patriots in Tennessee, and I'm sorry I missed your email. How do you still keep going after all of this? I can tell you at 44, I feel pretty jaded already. Yeah, but you, what is the last sentence you said? I said at 44, I feel pretty jaded already. How have you managed <laughs> to keep this enthusiasm up all this time? Because I believe in moral absolutes, as I said, the right mm -hmm. is right and wrong is wrong. And I have children and grandchildren. But the biggest, I think it isn't how I done it, but you can't allow them to scare you. You, you, if, if you allow fear into your mind, you're destroying your ability to think. And yes, so every once in a while, I do that. And you know, but I just, I have such, I guess it's because I re was raised by grandparents that said, 
you know, America is the greatest country on the earth and we believe in these certain things. And, and the American Constitution pretty much says it for me, you know, the right to free speech, the right to religion, all these things. And, and the America I grew up in, you could work for something that you wanted to work for and you weren't working to put illegal aliens in, in a high rise hotel in New York that you couldn't even afford to go to if you had to. I mean, I, I've just, you have to keep your sanity. And that isn't always easy, but I've tried to do it. I make jokes about things and people think, oh, wow, she's joking about that. Well, if you don't laugh, if you're going to crying is a lot harder to come back from than laughing. So mm-hmm. that's how I do it. Good work. I, just as an aside, was Rosa Corey uh, uh, any, uh, uh, was she an influencer in your life? And who are the other influences in your life uh, on this sort of stuff? Well, Rosa came in near the, Rosa didn't come in till quite late compared to when Tom and I were. Uh, But Rosa could sum things up like nobody else. She could sum the whole thing up in a 15-minute speech that Tom and I would give an hour and a half, you know, I mean, and I, and I loved Rosa. She was great. And what was great about her is that she was a liberal. She was a Democrat. She was a lesbian. And yet she fought all this. And so they all hated her because she was supposed to be one of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry she's gone. But yeah, Rosa was my, I think I was influenced I, when I started out. I had no idea what I was getting into. I literally had no idea. And um, when I and my husband, some somebody asked me to give a speech, and I said to my husband, "I can't give a speech. I'm I'm this reclusive mother." And and he said, "Well, if you don't have a give a speech, we're going to have to shut the organization down." I had an organization called Putting People First, and I said. But they've sent me threatening letters. They, If I shut it down because I can't speak, they'll think I shut it down because they threatened me. There's no way that's going to happen. So, you know, I had to learn. And I was very fortunate to run into people that were fighting on all the environmental issues. And they accepted me in, not realizing it was all together. And a guy named Ron Arnold was one of the the great um, people. He's written a number of books. He's he's no longer with us. Um, I would say he was one. And Doctor Dixie Lee Ray. Did you ever hear about her? She was. She was a. I don't think she was an astro. No, she wasn't an astrophysicist. She was an oceanographer, and she headed up the um, first commission for. Anyway, she was also governor of of Washington State, and she was she went down to the nineteen ninety two Rio summit. And we were having a meeting and she would call us every night and tell us what they were saying. And then when the Brundtland Commission was writing their big report, 
This was back before the internet. So somebody was sending us faxes every night. And I was one of the four people that was allowed to get them. And he was sending them from Norway. And those were mm, the people that have really been influential. So, and a guy from Tennessee. (laughs) oh yeah funny that funny that no uh, for listeners the the reports that uh, kathleen just referred to the bruntland report the rio summit this is all going back to the big daddy that we all don and i often speak about united nations right from the very genesis and would you believe uh kathleen we have 120 people in our parliament in new zealand we call it the beehive i've often thought it's very aptly called the beehive that building uh oh, could we could call it the honest nest we should see but not one not one politician be it from you know the sitting labor or the opposition has ever stood up and called out the united nations hey you're talking about a governor you have other places where people have called that out across the ditch in australia we have half a dozen fine senators calling this out new zealand considers it's a conspiracy theory and yet we are the poster child. We are the foremost lab rats, the best lab rats the United Nations has ever had. Because, you know, small, isolated, geographically isolated country at the bottom of the world, relatively pliant population, haven't had a war for a while. Now, I'm not glorifying war, but we've been at peace for a long time. So, you know, what's a bit of Agenda 2030 between friends? We've had our last PM, Jacinda Ardern, speak at the goalkeepers conference in new york in 2017 and say that her government will do something no other country has tried and uh, to sort of paraphrase i can't remember the exact quote, we will be putting the agenda 2030 sustainable development goals into our ready legislation and boy have we delivered we use the UNDRIP, which is the united nations declaration on the rights of indigenous people to use divide and rule. We have a whole lot of bureaucrats right now justifying their existence, absolutely not caring about how they're destroying the social fabric of the society. We talk about well-being and being kind and all of those nice words. But the average Kiwi right now is really struggling. We are amongst, I believe, just one or two of the Asian Oceania economies that are in a recession. Our milk payout dropped twice over the last month. And, you know, we trade. That's uh, primary products, our our biggest export. Last year, they were 82% of our exports. And we've got farmers struggling. No one speaks out. And yet you would think Dawn headed this fine organization called Federated Farmers, that someone would speak up about what's happening. It's all a conspiracy of silence. And as I call it, an epidemic of spinelessness. But we're building back better, uh, supposedly. <laughs> um, I call it uh, building back better badly. Um, it is. It is. A, it's, it's all that Jasper's talking about. It is a bit. It, it's really bad here. But a uh, we shouldn't be so negative about. Um, yeah, we've got to uh, try and beat this. That's the game. Um, how do we? Well, I shouldn't call it a game. That's the ambition. Uh, we've got to knock the stuff back into shape. And uh, sadly, we've taken. We had major reforms here. Sorry, and I know New Zealand, we're talking about New Zealand. We should be talking about the United States. Um, New Zealand reformed itself in 1985 from close to near bankruptcy. Uh, 
And so we had 50 years uh, or almost, oh, sorry, that's not right, 35 years of what the left always called these neo-market um, conditions. Well, it might have been a bit tough for people like me in the 80s, but actually in the end it was working okay. And the last six years we've just had all those uh, reforms and the yeah, the devaluation of this country has been massive. And I observe it in the States as well. You know, I just, I do observe it from afar. Uh, but I don't think your farmers are as um, out of touch with things as perhaps we seem to be here. Um, I would, I don't know what percentage of the farmers are out of touch. I think because of, people like Tom and me and other people that have spoken all over the country for 30 some years, there are a lot of farmers that are far more awake. And and a big part of it, I would go talk to people. And, and like I say, I started out fighting animal rights and I would explain to them how they were using a fight for an, rights for animals to attack humans. And the people would say, and I would explain it all and they say oh I never thought of that um and, and a lot of people would say oh I feel just like you do but I never knew how to put it into words because we never had to put it into words we didn't have to put into words that I eat meat and drink milk and wear leather full you know we didn't have to because it was everybody realized not only was it natural everybody does it Everybody eats and, you know, drinks and all. But it's also, we never had, we're, in, we're once there's sides. You you could believe, people can be vegetarians and, and they wouldn't fight with you over eating meat. But now you're evil if you do. So it's, it's, it's people have to be, we have to lead them. We have to nudge them but not nudge them the way they do. We have to explain to them what is really happening. And it's hard. And one of the things I come up against is people say, oh, it's just too hard to understand. I, I love what you're doing. You go do it, but I can't, I can't be bothered. And, you know, and at first you get a little irritated, but eventually you realize what we have to do is we have to take our countries back, but it has to be on the local level. In each town, in each city, and then you try to give the county, you got to whatever, I don't know how you divide up your country, but you know, we have to take it back from the bottom up. We let it happen, and they that's how they did it from the bottom up, and now we have to. Yeah, it's interesting. I know Jaspreet's a counsellor and uh, everything she reads, because I read some of the stuff, I humiliate myself enough to read it as well. It's got the United Nations agenda stuff all through it. The main parliament in the country denies it exists, even though it's through our legislation. And uh, the local councils have been seduced into applying it at every uh, opportunity. So winding that back is a matter of... Um, getting count, people that stand for councils to understand that they have been uh, played. Uh, but I don't see a great willingness to front that here, uh, apart from people like Jaspreet. 
Um, so let's just move on a little bit more. You, you're up to uh, next year having a presidential election. We're up to having our election in the next six or eight weeks. Wow. And and I read of uh, the agenda of um, Klaus and Antonio and his and their mates um, talking about how with AI, you will not need to have uh, sovereign country elections. It'll be a borderless world, and AI will be able to predict predict what the outcome would be. If that's not a massive red flag for all humanity, what will it what will it take? What will it take to knock this back into its um, rightful place? And do we have to round these people up and put them into a, a desert island, a deserted <laughs> island? Sorry, a deserted <laughs> island, not a desert. Um, yeah, because it's 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 quite. It's quite damning if society is prepared to let that sort of rhetoric, because he has said that. I mean, I've, I've heard it on um, on a Sky News um, playback. Um, if that if that's allowed to gain traction, surely people are going to wise, wise up. Surely. If they had said that 20 years ago, yes. But think about it. It's, it's incrementalism. They 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 keep doing a little more and a little more and it's just you know the alligators back there and there's not too many people behind you anymore that can get eaten before it's your turn it's, yeah it, it, this has been incrementalism and this is why that it now i have to say now people are waking up but it's like i want to say it's too darn late and it and it's too darn late in many ways because this country is going to financially go to hell i mean seriously but if they wake up at least we can and we can start taking taking our country back a little bit by a little bit as i said but it's it's you know, Tom and I have been screaming this for 30 years. Yes. And I have to tell you, Ed, it's it's frustrating. But all you can, uh, you know, and people are waking up. I went to this meeting on Saturday and there's all these younger people, which was wonderful because, I, you know, I give speeches all over and many, many, many times Everybody was older. It's the older people that went to school and were brainwashed that get it. But so it's hard to get through to the people that have been in the schools and have been taught moral relativity. And and so it's just a matter of finding, you know, even if you only find one person when you give a speech, one person that wakes up, that person can then go ahead and start talking. So we can't we can't be discouraged. We what we don't have a choice. Literally, never, we don't never give up. One thing we haven't talked about in this interview, and it just um, uh, dawned on me then, was uh, when we were talking about elections and 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 how the left and right are playing games. But you know, in, in the middle, there's nothing seems to be hitting the mark um is the influence of the big fund managers and of course you have three of them that are huge in the scheme of things um what what influence are they having over every investment every major corporation uh and even the elections what are they having 
Uh, is there any any uh, influences there? Um, yeah, of course, of course. You know, they're but they're all part. Look who who goes to Davos. I mean, they're there, so they're put in there just to do what they need to do. But what is interesting is some of those big guys are backing out of the ESG, you know, that they're uh-huh. backing out of it. They're discovering, how do we tell our investors, you just lost 48% of your stock value because we were promoting wokeness. Uh-huh. So, but, and, and every little bit helps. And, and so as long as we can, I mean, you look at, I don't, I'm sure you saw the Bud Light. Um, yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. The beer fiasco. Yep. Disney. Yeah. So it, it's happening. And every time something like this happens, it helps people wake up. They're going, yeah. oh, well, I never thought of that. Well, no, because you never thought. But it, once they get to start thinking, that's when we can get them. Yeah. And I also think your your mailers out from the American Policy Policy Center are great. I think I get about one once a week. And the recent one that came a few days ago, it was about uh, the headlines, the way that email is uh, sort of uh, formatted. You have blocking at the sun, the latest idiocy from Bill Gates, banning shortfall flights, uh, party poopers, LA canceling fireworks. And this one actually got me thinking. Restrictions on ice cubes. So the emailer says, you see, it takes energy to make ice cubes. So the drive is on to end unsustainable ice cubes. The Scientific American says it needs a lot of water to make Manhattans and margaritas. And I was looking at this. I said, are you having me on? So I went through the link to the Scientific American and blow me down. They are actually (laughs) talking about the fact that even a moderately busy bar requires about 200 pounds of ice and it is the most critical element of, uh, you know, bar and how much are they using per night? According to Todd Bell, senior energy analyst at Efficiency Energy Consulting Room, you look at this sort of stuff and you send it to people and suddenly you get even the most, you know, head under in the sand, wake up and take notice. But it's amazing. This is what America has come to. I mean, it is some of you guys there. And are you actually being, <laughs> you are not allowed to chill your drinks anymore? How about this? That guy that figured it out, how much is he getting paid? Getting paid. <laughs> I mean, seriously, somebody's uh, getting paid to figure out how much it costs to make ice for a bar? Uh-huh. I mean, Oh, and, and and in the UK, they were short of um, carbon dioxide. And I think even we were in New Zealand for a bit um, through the mm-hmm. lockdown period. Uh, CO2 was in short supply. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. I, uh, there is one quote I've used often in, you know, the last few years. And this is by, and I'm going to butcher his name, the uh, literature a Nobel Prize winner for 1970, the Russian Alexander Sholzetnitsyn. And I probably butchered it, but he said um, he also wrote the Gulag uh, series. Archipelago. Yep, that one. And he said, we know they are lying. They they know they are lying. They know we know they are lying. We know they know we know they are lying, but they still continue. They still keep on lying. And that's where we are right now, isn't it? Constantly. And that's why Dawn and I keep saying you have to humiliate this lot because 
otherwise, you know, if you don't laugh, you'll cry and you have to humiliate. And boy, do I enjoy myself doing this. Uh-huh. Yep. I'm going to use that quote. I thought I, I remember that and I love that book. And that was probably one of the last decent people that won the Nobel Prize. I mean, yes. Yes. He could win it today. He would be, he wouldn't even be considered a viable contestant today. Now, you now need uh, Greta Thunberg and the like now to and, be, you know, the four forerunners for those sort of prizes. And you do, you do. <laughs> hey, one thing we haven't uh, touched on, um, and that is starting to to bug me, is about the truth uh, or something screwy that's gone on, and it's sad in, in Hawaii and at Maui. Uh, something seems to be a bit off with the output there. And have you got any indication that? It is because from the other side of the world, it just seems that there's a bit of information missing. A bit of information. Um, and and here I'm not as knowledgeable about everything, but as I several years ago, I was asked by a professional journal to write a story on the fires in Northern California that they were having. And there was that incident of how these houses could burn down, but the trees are still standing. You know, it was amazing what you saw. Well, in in Hawaii, you see the houses are burning down, the trees are still standing, but the cars are burning. Metal is burning and and melting down. And you have to say, um, oh, and somebody had said that it was a um, fireball hurricane. Did you read mm-hmm. that? Yep. That was, I mean, fireball. I mean, okay. How has everyone, has anyone ever seen a hurricane be made out of fire right. instead of water? I mean, and we're supposed to believe these things. And like, I, I told you that I had just gotten that book on the fire that was written, what, a day before the fire started? Um, yeah, so, I saw the hard copy in your hand. Listeners, we are talking across Zoom. So, you know, you only listen to the audio, but we are all looking at each other. And Kathleen has a hard copy of that book, probably written by AI or something, or who knows what. Ed, is that you or me? That's probably yours. Please. No problem there. And, you know, Don, you, I think I sent you a message because suddenly in my Kindle reader, a whole lot of these top <laughs> books on Hawaii popped up. And I was like, what is happening here? Well, you're you better read than I am, Jasper. I have none of that happening to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you think about it, you know, you, I've read a lot about... Um, how they control the weather, how the governments are controlling the weather and all. But to make these wildfires happening is is, uh, it makes you believe that yes, they are, that the government is doing this because how else could these things happen? How else could they happen? I mean, uh, uh, climate, this, the only way is if climate really changed and climate changed so that instead of having wet hurricanes, you now have 
have fire spitting hurricanes if you have if you turn everything upside down like they talk about the all these um the polar ice is melting uh and when if we end up having a new greenland up in iceland up in the mm. pole you know all these weird things that you know I'm speechless. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I and you know it's not like it's something new. The Americans under Operation Popeye, they spoke about this in the Vietnam War that how they increased the length of yeah. uh, the Vietnamese monsoon from three months to six months because they said you know we'll make mud not war and hopefully end the war with less casualties that way. So who knows what those geniuses are doing half a century later? The Harvard Solar Engineering Program. called scopex the stratospheric controlled perturbation experiment talks about similar things but it's just like we were talking about you know smart cities and ulis and quiet streets there's different names and suddenly if you don't use scopex you use another terminology oh you're venturing into conspiracy uh, you know that side of things but it's it's all around us we see it and if there's one thing i've learned in this last you know few years it is like never say never i never completely disregard anything it's like i keep a really open mind you know really open mind if you don't you're going to go crazy yeah you yeah. guys are great you this this has been one of the most enjoyable interviews i've had thank you <laughs> thank you so much kathleen for ha- having you know taking the time out i so appreciate it and more than that my utmost respect for someone who can carry on with this crusade for as long as you and Tom have i certainly think america would be far deeper in the doodoo without the american policy center i don't exactly we're and we're in your debt i mean we we have a couple of institutions like yours in new zealand and some in australia but yeah we need lots more of them and um all pat your arm and may you um may you have a uh, um good rest of this year and a good lead up into 2024 presidential elections. I'll be watching oh, with interest. <laughs> into that, but thank you, thank you so much. And again, thank you for having me on. I've so enjoyed it. Our pleasure. Bye-bye, Kathleen. Bye-bye. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to www.realitycheck.radio/members and join now. Thanks for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to twenty fifty seven. That's two zero five seven. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck dot radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to RCR um, Reality Check Radio with Don and Jaspreet and Greenwashed. I hope you liked that uh, interview with Kathleen McQuad. She certainly puts it all out, all out there and. Um, she's not a young lady these nowadays of course and uh, her energy is still palpable when you're interviewing her so yeah go back and um go back to 
the interview with Tom DeWeese. Go back to the website from the American Policy Center and you'll learn a whole lot more um, if you wish, if you wish. And if you wish to know even more in the New Zealand context, well, get your tickets for the Advancing 2030 Agenda program that's going to be held at the Beehive on the 20th of September with the keynote speaker, Dr. Sir Ashley Bloomfield. Yeah, you'll be getting two or three tickets, Jasper, and you won't be buying one from me. But um, good this work is probably for, yeah, explained it's very on, This this explains why none of our politicians are speaking up. Mm. Mm. You know, when you have you can have a conference for furthering agenda twenty thirty right at the center of power of the country. Mm. Well, says it all, doesn't it? Absolutely says it all. And uh, I, it, it's interesting how um, managed that whole forum will be because it's gathering momentum, I, I, I sense. And so, yeah, look, let's hope, um, let's hope it works. Yeah. I just, I think that there will be a lot of people want to have a lot of say. And I know how when you get all enthused about going to conferences and wanting to have your say, and all of a sudden you're shut down, they manage the questions. They will perhaps use a technology, the like of Slido to, to text your questions. In. And then of course, then they can monitor them and manage them. So um, yeah, it's it good for people that um, I, I can't humor myself by going to that. Uh, but I'll be li- keen to hear the feedback from others that do. Yeah. Mm. But there's lots on. There's so much on. We're leading up to an election and and there's just so many distractions. You would be forgiven for thinking that, you know, you're battling on multiple fronts because it's actually coming from all directions, be it stuff like Auckland Transport doing this whole thing about how all their staff are now into active transport or the new uh, bike lane, is it from Port Chalmers? Oh, that, yeah. Yeah, in Dunedin. Oh, I can't believe how the much? price. <laughs> I can't believe the price. Hard I to can't believe, believe the, green, the greenwashing, the brainwashing of uh, these employees at Auckland Transport who actually think they're doing great. Mm. Mm. So, uh Auckland Rail, what was it? You came up with the figure, 1.2 million a week. I think it was Simeon Brown got an answer to a question as being forked out to keep the wheels turning on the $14.6 billion light rail project in Auckland. Um, yeah. Pay How many consultants and engineers does that pay for? It <laughs> seems like a heck of a lot. You know, the figure has been going up and up about the Auckland uh, light rail project and not a sword has been turned, literally. $75 million, I believe, on consultants and counting. Otago Daily Times in April reported that the taxpayers are forking out $1.2 million a week to keep the wheels turning on the government's $14.6 billion light rail project in Auckland. Imagine the uh, Auckland light rail pays 900 I mean, there is even a company named Auckland light rail when it doesn't even exist. Is paying nine hundred twenty thousand to two engineering companies to plan and design this project, and a further three hundred ten thousand to its own contractors and consultants. These figures came from Transport Minister Michael Woods in a written response to a parliamentary question from Simeon Brown. Mm. Amazing, 
And you well, see all the big names, PricewaterhouseCooper, Ernest Ed Young, KPMG, uh, have all reaped rewards, windfalls actually out of this project. And there is more in the works. Yeah, that's over five years, it seems, since 2017. 17. So yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, uh, Brown, this is Simeon Brown, just described the 50 million and weekly spend figure as a gravy train on a project that's gone nowhere. Despite a province from a promise from former Labour leader Jacinda Ardern to have first stage running from Winyard Quarter to Mount Roscoe built by now. And then in the last paragraph, of course, you've got the mayor saying he's skeptical about light rail and wants to wait and see the impact of 5.5 billion dollar city rail link will have on the city's transport network before forging ahead with the new mode. I mean, you would think that people could be more uh what's what's the red? direct or absolute make 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 things happen if they have committed and to yeah. have this much spend going and not a rail track laid seems a bit odd there is no productivity it's you know i mean you look at the dunedin to port uh, chalmers oh. cycleway 10 kilometers yeah. took 3 years and 50 million 50 million to build and they said this is because uh, the biggest challenge for the country's latest cycleway was there was simply no space to build it, a very complex project. And it was officially opened a few days back, sometime last week. And why would you do that if these things are not practical? Does That's where the ideology comes in. Some places are not feasible for that, but it's like, ours is not to reason why. Ours is but to do or die, regardless of the cost. And yet, this uh, last week, in more greenwashing news, the government's policy statement on land transport 2024 has been released. It's out for, in quotes, consultation till 15th of September. And the first thing it says is that the minister's expectation guidelines in the, you know, the brief synopsis they provided is investments must be efficient and effective. Building back better, there's that word again, so that investment in maintenance and renewals it fits for the future. How is this cost effective? We have a country where people can't afford basic housing. Hospitals are falling to bits. Food is through the roof. But yes, cycleways will save us. Yeah, cycleways move goods and services really well, don't they? Really yeah. well. They, you know, they move tons. You know, you can you can really put a lot on a bike and and move it around. Uh, you go to downtown um, Karachi or downtown Lahore, and you can see how bikes and donkeys take stuff around. Um, you don't <laughs> need to uh, think that that's smart. So look, it going back just before I get on this high horse, I was staggered to see that uh, Port Chalmers. Um, cycleway at $50 million from Dunedin City out there. They're not worried about sea level rise because the deck of that bridge, of that that laneway all the way out there is probably at the high tide mark currently. So it's going to get its feet washed quite a lot. Um, clearly, they're not as worried as Invercargill City uh, leaders are when they're talking about their climate change policy because they're talking about having sort of uh, 
building resilience and build, you know, adapting now to this this threat that might happen. And one councillor has said um, or challenged another councillor that water could be lapping. We've got to got to get ahead of this before water starts lapping Tay Street. Well, people that know in Chicago, like we do, know that Tay Street is a good, mm, let's say, five or six metres above sea level. I think it's got quite a long time before what is going to be lapping on Tay Street. But, but there you go. The gaming of the, the politics of all this is a bit crazy. And I know I've deflected you from your story around Auckland and um, light <laughs> rail and all that spending. But this, I think your key point is this, um, Jaspreet. We are a country that has to move goods and services around as efficiently yep. as we can and cycleways and light rail don't do it. So no. what's our priority? And I agree with you. Uh, we, we're we very poor at prioritising. I mean, but I do think back. I remember the Think Big projects of the, uh, I think, the 70s, 1970s, and leading to the likes of the Klein Dam and, you know, the, the Tekapo schemes. And, you know, if they hadn't had ballsy politicians who might have been left, you know, Muldoon and others, but left of centre, they did it. They got it done. And it's actually served New Zealand really well. So what's the first thing that um, uh, a country should do or what is the thing a country can do to unlock itself when it's a bit strapped? Unlock the economy by putting in proper infrastructure that does the business for commerce. That's number one. Cycleways, moving goods. Yes, John. Yeah. yeah. Good point, especially a cycleway, as you said. If you look at those images, very, very close to uh, sea level. But... Looking at the NZTA transport policy statement, it says that their revenue is projected to rise from 15.5 billion in 2021-22 to 20.8 billion in 2024-25, an increase of 34 billion. Where's this coming from? No new taxes? I can't think that will not be happening. There'll be new taxes, all right? They've already signaled them, haven't they, Jasper? 34% increase in investment. Yeah. yeah. So increase in revenue there. And then when I go and look at the details of this draft government policy statement on land transport, at what are the strategic programs they're talking about, page four of that catches my attention, the Auckland Northwest Rapid Transit. Don and I just spoke about the fact that the previous one, which is nowhere to be seen, costs you $1.2 million a week. There's another one in the works. A detailed business case is underway, says the consultation document, to plan what's needed to accelerate work on the city's corridor from the city centre to Brigham Creek to support emission reduction from this highly car-dependent industry area of the city and the funding provided to the draft gps could enable waka kotahi to accelerate work to finalize the preferred solution and which includes early stage delivery of rapid transit stations over the next three years wow mm. so we've not done yet we have more ambitions a 34 percent increase in revenue that is some money for jam there Oh, yes, and we've got uh, the new cycleways uh, around Auckland uh, downtown. I, I think I saw an article about, and the guy was leading that video, talked about how we've 
going to take 2000 cars a day off the road and you know think of the savings on emissions and all that well yeah i mean they're going to analyze that they're going to have all those cars uh, and the people traveling through tunnels and bridges uh, all under surveillance now they've said pretty much that you're all being watched mm. doing the doing the head count doing the car count mm. right yeah I, and i can't help but play this video by larry fink larry fink who heads blackrock which is come and come to the aid of us new zealanders to help us save us from climate armageddon so let us listen to him what does he say about this that's a, that's an investment criteria for you well behaviors are going to have to change and this is one thing we're going to, we're asking companies uh, you have to force behaviors and at blackrock we are forcing behaviors uh, 54% of the incoming class are women we we added four more points in terms of diverse uh, employment this year and it if it, it you know what we are doing internally is if you don't achieve these levels of impact it, your compensation could be impacted okay we're doing the same thing and so it's just it, you have to force behaviors and if you don't force behaviors whether it's gender or race or just any way you want to say the composition of your team you're going to be impacted and that's not just not recruiting it is development as ken said and ultimately it's still going to take time but i am just as much shocked as ken is that we have not seen more opportunities and we're going to have to force change we're going to have to force change and you know what's surprising don in that whole uh, little monologue from larry fink he never spoke about efficiency even once not even once and the threatening tone uh was unpleasant to listen to uh we do know that he said uh and i'm paraphrasing in, in previous commentary he's come out with where uh hedge fund managers like him do like uh uh totalitarian governments so that you can uh, have them create markets that suit the capitalist uh the yeah, crony he capitalist said, he said authoritarian governments mm. give us give markets certainty yeah yeah, yeah. and oh, yeah it makes me sick uh, based on a uh free enterprise process that i sort of have been brought up with so isn't it interesting how um blackrock went from zero funds in 1988 to pre-gfc in 2007 of i think around 500 million mm. to post-gfc uh in 2011 to 3.5 trillion and now are over 12 trillion uh and and they are stymieing competition in just about everything we know uh that's part of their game is to destroy he, competition he spoke very clearly about the fact gender race mm. he used uh, these words and you know don and i have often spoken about the fact that you have dei or diversity equity inclusion and esg characteristics that that characteristics esg parameters that companies now look for your environmental social and governance so how many women in the team what maternity leave uh how many gender fluid people how many races what percentage of quotas and all of that we have a government doing the same you have certain number of goods that must be taken from maori uh suppliers you must have unelected seats you must have uh, people sitting on uh, government uh, panels which have who have not been elected you have race based healthcare system 
You have race-based education, race-based scholarships. This is a case of follow the money. It's not a case of diversity, equity, it truly what we thought was diversity and equity. But I think at this point, we should introduce um, our next guest. Don and I have, uh, I think we are going past our lot of time. And we will, after this, as is our want, be heading into talks about climate and the utter nonsense and the greenwashing that is going on in this uh, area, be it your cycleways or be it farming, regardless of what you do, you will not be untouched mm. and you will be decarbonized whether you like it or not. Yeah, true. And so isn't it interesting, we have a gentleman called Ian McIntosh coming up um, and he's got a very interesting slideshow that he's willing to give around um, to anyone who wants to listen, Rotary Clubs, any sort of club that's interested in this sort of thing, he'll come in and speak to you and He's talked about um, how CO2 is man's essential gas. And I can't uh, dispute anything he says. It was fantastic to have someone who's basically just come out of the woodworks and yeah. presented that story. And he's got a really good presentation. No doubt the um, the climate alarmists will, will tackle him and um, call him names. But, you know, he's up for the fight like we are. I mean, Jasper, I went onto a, a website called DSmog last week, and I know oh. this is digging a hole for myself here. <laughs> I can't, I cannot believe so much is written by so many people who seem to know so much about stuff that they don't know about, but they've yeah. got an opinion. And everything uh, we talk about is trying to put the facts on the table. Uh, there's so much subjectivity and so much nasty stuff. Um, on climate blogs that you just wonder when can this ever be um, the boil be lanced but people like Ian McIntosh we just need him he's he's um he's a breath of fresh air a very good nature gentleman and, and understated guy understated guy it's fantastic to have those sort of people around so we'll us. be back in a minute with Ian thank you so much for joining us this morning this is Jeff Reed and Don Nicholson on Greenwash please remember you can text us on 2057 or email us at inbox at the rate reality check dot radio. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to uh, Greenwashed on Reality Check Radio with Don and Jaspreet. Uh, remember to keep giving that lovely feedback, uh, warts and all, actually, we don't mind, <laughs> um, on 2057 or uh, emails on inbox at realitycheck.radio. Now, it's not often we get people jump from out of the woodwork um, that are passionate, energetic on a specific subject, but recently we were given a name of a gentleman who lives in or near, near Christchurch who actually has done a whole lot of research on um, climate change, global warming, global boiling, you name it, he's done it. And he, he has no reason to do it. It's just turned into a um, a hobby horse of his. And I guess you would argue that uh, because it's in the in the public sphere so much, and because of his background, he has decided that he's just got to do something. His name's Ian McIntosh. He's a former Queenslander living in Christchurch. He's got a degree in rural technologies, and 
I think is interesting to be piqued when he found out that Dr. Patrick Moore was a co-founder of Greenpeace, had something in common with people like us. Um, and so Ian's decided to uh, do a whole project. It's about 70 slides. Um, I'm sure he's available to do clubs and, uh, and the like if you want to have him along as your guest speaker. Uh, talking about, the myth, you know, it's almost the mystique and mythology of um, climate change, global warming, global boiling. So welcome, Ian. We're really happy to have you on um, Greenwashed. Uh, I know you've put a lot of effort into this, and I know you've had some international class well, you know, recognize scientists say, yep, this is good, good to go. So happy to have you on. And um, yeah, what what was the motivation? Apart from all the stuff I've just sort of said, did you have any other motivations? I mean, ruminant agriculture, for instance. Yeah, well, uh, well, thank you, Donna and Jasper. It's a real privilege to be on on with you. I think this is just a, such a worthy cause and an important fight that we're involved in. And uh, and and after all, th this is basically a, a fight about truth. And I think over my forty plus years of involvement in in applying science to agriculture and and working for employers who expect a return on their investment in my salary, it's important that you uh, you tell the truth or discover the truth more times than not, otherwise you won't have a job. Mm. So uh, truth's become very, very important to me and obviously in the agricultural sciences it, it's very important to me and of course fascinating but what's prompted this is that when we came to the South Island, uh, I'm married a New Zealander and we came to the South Island and took the children over to the west coast to show them the glaciers and having been brought up in northern Australia, of course, uh, ice was not something that, that I saw in a natural state. So we went over to Fox Glacier, and as we drove off the main road uh, up to the glacier face, I couldn't believe that here were all these markers sitting on the road showing where the ice had been in living memory. And uh, I thought, wow, that, that's moved a lot. That's retreated a lot. So I, I store that in my mind, and then when we get to the car park, uh, where you look across at a place called Cone Rock, um, you know, there was this big plaque and I decided to take some photos because um, it's just one of those things that struck me that there was some history here that I needed to recall at some point in the future. And, um, and of course, Al Gore had come along in the meantime and put out his book and, and I, I, I didn't get engaged with that a lot because uh, I was a young dad and I had plenty on my plate and you leave that fight up to other people, particularly when it's in America. So uh, I, I left that for a wee while and then I realised this was getting closer and closer and I happened to stumble across an article on, on YouTube one day uh, with Patrick Moore talking and I thought, mm, that's interesting. I, I, I hadn't heard as often as the case that there are very very smart people who, whose opinions are suppressed and uh and so i was pretty naive about the skullduggery that was happening really and uh, so i decided to do some digging and came across some other people and i thought well maybe there's something into this so i decided to go and, and look at things like the amount of ice that's in antarctica for example and, and i could not believe it was not in any way consistent with what we were hearing on the news Mm. And uh, so yeah. I thought, well, Ian, just do due diligence like you've done with every other science challenge that's come your way over the last 40-odd years. Um, you know, anybody that's involved in takes agriculture seriously 
realises that there's a lot of knowledge and understanding to be gained if you're going to do justice. And uh, so this was no different. So I decided to, uh, to get stuck in. My wife um, found it incredibly frustrating that I was so passionate about something. But I, I smelled a big rat and uh, realised that uh, as a grandfather I, I, and a father, obviously, I, I needed to do something about it that utilised my skill set. So I dug in and uh, and I, I've produced this collation of uh, a compilation of, a, of, a, of basically information that I have found amazing how it just totally contradicts the garbage that not only are we being told on, on in the media, but our kids and grandkids are being taught, and it's appalling. So um, I, I'm afraid uh, I'm in for the scrap, and uh, I'm not backing down, and uh, I'm doing my darndest and, and trying to assist wonderful people like you to do the same. So um, it's lovely to be able to, to share my passion like that and have other people enjoy it. And it's fair to say that, that my wife now understands why I'm scrapping. <laughs> Good work. We, we love people who scrap. I, and, you know, just like uh, your wife, I have a long-suffering husband <laughs> who has seen me go from, you know, just wanting to be a wife or mom to getting behind him in farming and then slowly going, nah, something more needs to be done. This thing is going down to the gurgler faster yeah. than, you know we can deal with it. But it is not just the rural people, is it, Ian? Around you in Christchurch, your new road corridors, your new biking lanes, Mm. Helen Clark Foundation currently doing seminars across the country about spongy, spongy cities that can absorb the rainfall expected. This is not just a farming issue anymore. And that's what I want to make clear to our listeners. It is not, is it? No, no, I know, but and it's coming home to roost. You know, I was talking to a gentleman today who's who's a very, very smart man in, in Christchurch, mm. and uh, and he said, I, I know something's wrong, but I can't put my finger on it. And I said, Well, let me help you. And uh, and and he just could not believe what what he was hearing. In fact, he was quite overwhelmed. He said, Look, Ian, you better stop now. I don't think I can handle any more. But the fact is, it's real. Mm. Uh, it, it's coming. It's come to New Zealand. And it, it's so it's so big a deal that we've got no option um, but to fight it. And and the tool is we've just simply got to share the truth. The key is how do we do it? And and that's driven me to produce those slides, that slideshow, because uh, a picture tells a thousand words. And it, uh, I don't need to say a lot. The slides say it all. I and mean, then people go away and feel that they know they've been lied to. And, and yeah. we, we don't not like being lied to. And uh, we teach our kids not to lie. And uh, so we've got to help them to see for themselves that they've been lied to. And uh, so that's what I'm endeavouring to do. It's interesting. Uh, 20-odd years ago, I thought the man uh, hockey stick was something to be concerned about. Um, uh, and and then uh, for several years, I was thinking there's something a bit fishy here, but was never quite sure. I mean, I stood out on the sides thinking this is just wrong. Farming doesn't need to be this compliant on any of the stuff. It's all a bit screwy. And it took till um, about six or seven years ago to realise that it, it was um, pretty much a con job. But anyway, I take my hat off to the fact that you've put all this effort into developing this to show that you can, as I said, um, you're willing to go out and uh, inform other people about. But you've entitled it CO2, A Man's Essential Friend. Mm. And 
that's the nub of it, isn't it? It's often been the bogeyman, CO2, something that is the fertilizer of life and something that if you don't exhale uh, as a human being, um, it's not pleasant. You're likely quite dead. So let's rip into um, some basics. What's the atmospheric composition made up of um, and what component of that is CO2? Well, isn't it interesting that if you were to go and ask, and I know that there are some very informed people that don't have a clue what that is, oh. and, and, and then when you go and look it up, you think, wow, th this is so, so stark. So essentially, you know, on a volume basis, our atmosphere is, is predominantly about 78% nitrogen and, and around 22% oxygen. And and uh, and of course, argon's a, a big contributor, which I hadn't, didn't have a clue about until I started to get into this. But our CO2 is about 0.042, about 0.0417, about that uh, on a percent basis. And you convert that into PPM and you get about 417. Now, those are very, very small figures. But what, what's absolutely amazing about this is that tiny little bit of gas does so much. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, a, it's a miracle, it's a miracle molecule. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about the damage this thing does, I'm afraid there's no damage that I can find that it does. It's absolutely essential for for us and for the for the for the earth, and that's why I call it man's essential friend. It is no, uh, there's no doubt about it. And so, you know, it, the, the discussion is that it's raised up from a, a low of 280 parts per million to 417 parts per million, and. Um, the world's frying. I mean, yeah, Antonio Guterres a couple of weeks ago stood on the podium um, and and harangued the world and said, "We're now in the global boiling." Yeah. You know, what's happened in the a period of of two eighty two to four seventeen is not much warming. There is warming, but not much. Um, what is the dominant greenhouse gas? Well, it's 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 water vapor, isn't it? Yeah. And, um, and 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 even if you go and take a situation without clouds, of course, clouds are by far the biggest greenhouse gas. But water vapor, um, if you took water vapor um, and and uh, and stacked it against the other, well, it's by far the biggest greenhouse gas. But the thing is, without those greenhouse gases, you know, we, we'd have an average of minus nine degrees, uh, mm -hmm. and and we'd all uh, freeze. And my kids used to love that that show. Um, you know, cool runnings, and and there's a standard saying: freeze the Rastafarian nanas off, and and we all know what that means. And the fact is that as an as an Australian, you know, I had no idea what a frost was until I was about eighteen, and um, so I know that minus nine would absolutely destroy me, and and fifteen point five is the temperature that that we average now with those greenhouse gases. So they're all vital, thanks to water vapor. And, and CO2 contributes a little bit. But, you know, I had no idea that that little bit of CO2, it's the first 50 parts per million, which does the majority of the warming. Mm. And so when when you look at the, the information, and I dare say the IPCC uh, understands all this. It, it's not as if... Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, my, my source is, is Professor Happer. Um, but you know, it, the IPCC knows this, but they don't want to talk about it. So the first 50 parts per million, you know, does the majority of it. And then when you double, well, in other words, let, let's put some figures on the table. Most people would not understand that the amount of radiant heat that leaves our planet um, per square metre 
is is close on 400 watts per square meter. Now that's 400 watt light bulbs, you know, to put that into everyday language. So that's how much heat would leave our planet if we had no greenhouse gases. Now, when you go and put greenhouse gases in there, it prevents 87 watts from leaving Earth. So that's a warming effect of 87 watts per square meter. And then the first 50 watts per square meter, well, that warms at another 20 watts per square meter. All right. Mm. Now, interestingly, if you go from 50 parts per million to 100 parts per million of CO2, it only warms the planet by three watts per square meter. And then you double it again from 100 to 200, it only warms it by another three watts per square meter. And then go from you know, 100 to 200, three watts per square meter, 200 to 400, three watts per square meter, 400 to 800 is three watts per square meter. It's the same effect as when you go and paint your barn, when you've got new wood or, or an old barn, you go and paint it red. And then you go and put another coat of paint on, another coat of red on, on it. All you're doing is is making it, it, it redder, but it's the first coat of red paint that's done the work. And every other subsequent coat doesn't change much. It's, that's a good analogy, actually. And so um, you're talking about saturation effectively in that first percent, and uh, it's commonly talked about, but, gee, try to get that through the politicians' heads is quite difficult, let alone um, Jasper and I are farmers, um, our industry groups, we just we just can't get them to understand this, and it beggars belief why they don't want to be uh, more uh, understanding of it. So that's um, you talked about William Happer, Professor William Happer. I mean, his and and William Van Weingarten, their papers have been uh, out. The one that uh, captivated my attention was twenty nineteen, and of course, the argument is, oh, it's not peer reviewed, and it's the one where they talked about how nitrous oxide and, and CH4 were so irrelevant that not even worth um, observing. And then, of course, we've got a nitrous oxide paper of 2022 that has been peer-reviewed. So the people that says, uh, you know, you've got to argue that people didn't want it to be peer-reviewed because it was too much of a cut-through. Mm. Uh, so, sorry, Jasper. No, no, and I'm, what I'm thinking is, you know, our industry bodies are talking about the taxing methane and nitrous oxide. This is... Coming in the urban space, you will have now councils grappling, the ones that have been told you need to go to net zero, them grappling with their effluent ponds, their wastewater treatment plants, their landfills. Mm -hmm. We are going to be tying ourselves up into pretzels, into knots mm -hmm. for absolutely no end. And the way I see your presentation, Ian, it's the physics that's the dominant science here, which is very precise. Mm -hmm. The whole country is on a decarbonization bandwagon and they never tell us what's it going to cost from 407 parts per million. What are we going to bring it down to and how much is it going to reduce the temperature by? How can you spend our, our kids, our grandkids inheritance, their entire lives worth of productivity for mm. a pipe dream? And yet here we are. Well, the problem is, Jasper, and as you'll see uh, in, in my slideshow, that we've got nothing to do with this carbon dioxide. Mm. It, it, it is coming out of solution. That, that's what's happening. And, and the history, um, you know, recent history, the, the fantastic thing is there are eyewitness accounts that go back to the 1750s, and, and we saw what was happening with ice, places like Glacier Bay, and we've seen since 
um, well, I think the earliest recording of sea level was, was around the 1820s, 1830s, but um, at the place called the Battery in, uh, in New York, they've been doing it since about 1855. And the sea level rise has been constant mm. right back then, despite the fact that since the, the um, Industrial Revolution in 1760 to about 1850, we've increased the amount of CO2 that we've released the atmosphere burning you know, coal and, and oil and gas, we've increased that by 120,000%. Mm. In 1,200-fold, we've increased the discharge of carbon and its equivalence to the atmosphere by that bigger 1,200-fold, and yet it hasn't made any difference to the rate of sea level rise. It's made no difference to temperature, maximum temperature. But interestingly, the minimum temperature has been increasing. Now, in Canterbury, when we came to Canterbury, uh, there's a gentleman that lived ne near us and uh, he, he recently died just before his 100th birthday. He told me that he saw icebergs coming down the Rakai Gorge when he was a kid. Now, when I shared that at a uh, forum down at Lincoln University where, where they were promoting the narrative, uh, people didn't believe me. But the fact is, he said, look, I'm telling you, Ian, this man actually was, was, was a prominent uh, agriculturalist involved in sheep breeding, etc. Um, but he said, Ian, I'm no idiot. I tell you, I saw ice coming down as icebergs. The point is that when we arrived down in the South Island from the North Island, uh, we used to be able to walk on ice on the puddles. Mm -hmm. And you talk to any Cantabrian who grew up here, they'll tell you that the ice used to be that thick on, on the puddles that, that you know they could jump on it and it wouldn't break it as kids. Mm -hmm. Well, we know that it's not nearly as cold now. So definitely the winters are getting warmer, but the maximums aren't getting any hotter. And you go to Fresno in California, they've been keeping temperature records since back before the in you know, late 1800s. The temperature hasn't, maximum temperature hasn't gone up, but the minimums have definitely gone up, just like mm -hmm. they have in Canterbury, and it's trend right across America because they've got a lot of excellent temperature data. So why is it that people talk about the temperature's going up. What they should be saying is the average is going up, but it's not the maximums that are going up, it's the minimums. So the heat waves that hit America happened back in the 1930s. Mm. It's not, it, the, the records aren't being broken over there, so the maximums aren't getting hotter. What we've got to look at is the minimums. And uh, recently I was giving a talk and a, and a retired farmer said to me, he said, Ian, we know there's climate change um, because... We've now got weeds growing in the South Island that used to grow in the North Island. Well, that's true. If the winters aren't as harsh, they will come to the South Island. But plants are restricted in their growth, not by the maximums, but by the minimums. And the same thing happens with insects. So farmers will be seeing evidence of climate change, for sure, but it's not, it's not man-made. And the fact is that when the ice, when you go back to the 1750s in Glacier Bay, um, up up near the Arctic Circle, and you can go via cruise. You know, cruise liners go in there now to see the see mm. the glaciers. Well, the ice was uh, out into icy strait from Glacier Bay. So as you approach Glacier Bay, you, you go in through the mouth from icy strait into the bay. Well, the ice extended out into icy strait from Glacier Bay in 1750, and some of that ice was 1,200 meters above sea level. You know, and within about 40 years, it had retreated inside Glacier Bay. And 
1880, by far the majority of the ice had retreated. And had the disappeared. between then and now is tiny compared to what happened between 1750 and 1880. And, and those were eyewitness accounts. And a guy called Vancouver was the mariner. Vancouver happened to be one of those that recorded. So that's data recorded in living memory. Now, the other interesting thing is uh, what used to happen uh, with the Thames. The Thames used to freeze from about 1670 um, on, onwards till about the early 1800s. And they used to have ice fairs on, uh, on the Thames. And there are paintings of it. And, but then they, they had their last one in about 1814 to 1815, somewhere there. And it specifically states in the records, it's because the weather was warming and the ice wasn't strong enough to have their ice fairs. And, and yet prior to that, there were instances where the ice extended out for two miles into the English Channel. So we're going back here into, you know, a period, and they call it the Little Ice Age, and, and there are paintings of it. You know, we, we have eyewitness accounts. So they record a warming climate way back then. And, and of course, when you record the sea level rise uh, as close to that point as you can, and, and as I said before, in, in New York at the Battery from 1850, 1855 onwards, it's a steady rise in sea level. So something was happening way back then and I would argue that all we're seeing now is that the, the, the homeostasis, which is, you know, in balance, when, when a person's healthy, they're in homeostasis. The world is returning back to homeostasis after the little ice age. And everything that we see around us supports that. There are multiple places around the world that the uh, National, uh, what's it, NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, you know, I think they're, a, they're an official body from America and American government. You know, these guys have been recording sea level rise all around the earth um, for quite some, for a long time. You know, as I said, some of it's back to about 1820. And they're finding a linear increase despite exponential output of, of carbon. So, um, you know, there are a lot of signals to say there's something definitely wrong with, with the narrative. So... Hence why I started digging. And what's interesting is, you know, photosynthesis is something we take for granted every day. Mm -hmm. and, and, of course, the thing about photosynthesis, um, for people who, who do their gardens, they'll know their plants are green and, and they'll know why. Well, some might know why it's green. But when you have a look at the photosynthetic pathway, you know, there are six molecules of CO2 combined with six molecules of water and, and 2.87 megajoules of energy are used to convert those into one molecule of glucose and six molecules of oxygen. Now, without that pathway, we'd starve and we'd suffocate. And what's interesting is that the more CO2 you put in on the left-hand side of that equation, the more glucose you produce. And glucose enters the biochemical pathways that make life. That's how carbon dioxide gets into life and and we are basically our bodies are 18.5 percent carbon and that's how it gets into us and all life is absolutely totally reliant on co2 for carbon to end up in the biochemical pathways of life and that's why when you expose plant life to more co2 we get increased yields and, and even the FAO, you know, they, they know, in fact, there was some research that was done 
back in 1993, and, and they compiled 156 plant species and found that doubling CO2 provided an average growth increase of 37%. Now, if you want to do some back-of-the-envelope analyses, a 37% increase um, in production means that if you go from 280 parts per million back, as Don alluded to, back at the time of the Industrial Revolution, up to 560 parts per million, that means you need 37% less land to produce the same amount of biomass. Mm -hmm. That Now, that, that is stunning, and that, that's why people down here in Canterbury pump in 1,200 ppm into their greenhouses to grow tomatoes. Yep. yep. And we are not scared and of the carbon then. We are not afraid of venturing into our greenhouses, no. watering around there, no problem. And, you know, how does one come to this conclusion that Carbon is evil. You said in the beginning, it is 0.04% of the atmosphere, rounding it off to two digits. That is four parts out of every 10,000, yeah. 0.04%. So what makes the other 9,996 parts is my question. And how do you convince me that all the others are irrelevant? Take care of these four parts out of 10,000 and the climate will be stable. Yeah. Poppycock. And yeah. yet... It's mythology. That's, that's what they teach children. This is uh, part of my kids' science curriculum. In fact, very this morning, and that's why I the figures rolled off my tongue that easily, Ian, because yeah. uh, speaking about this to my daughter, yeah. that you know it's point zero four percent, and you know, can you do decimals? Yes, yeah. I said. So if you had if you had to cook something which had ten thousand different bits, and you yeah. only put those four ingredients, what do you think would happen? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense, mummy. That's and right. A child can understand that. That's right, and I and I think that's where we've got to fight this fight, Jasper. We, we've got to learn how to take simple information like that and put it into everyday language, so that even your children can work it out. And and I had an instance with my son uh, when he was at school, and one day he came home and he said, "Dad, you know I've been doing biology today, and and I think you're right." And and that was one of that that was a real joy to me. He, he doesn't recall the instance, but I do, and uh, and and that taught me a whopping great lesson. And that is to communicate information simply to, to to everybody in such a way that others can see it for themselves, and then you don't have to keep convincing them. They end up convincing other people, and that's our challenge. I just hope we've got enough time to do it. Yeah, I, I agree. And yeah, we've had um, Professor Ian Plymer on a few times on RCR, and he has just written a trilogy of books, some for junior children, you know, under teens and um, teenagers and adults. And he's put it in the parlance that is required for those age groups. And that's how it's got to be. But isn't it incredible? I'm going to repeat sort of what Jespreet's just saying, demonizing something that is so beneficial for the planet. Um, how did it, how did it get so much traction i i i still can't understand how 120 politicians breathing out co2 in the beehive can't understand that um it's a good thing uh i know that in, in the beehive they might have uh what would it be um the, what would the co2 concentration of oh. beehive be without some air conditioning it'll be t tens of thousands of parts oh, well. per million wouldn't it well, well, we know 40,000 parts per million is coming out of our mouth as we talk. And, and I dare say when some of those politicians get going, um, they'd probably produce more. But I, I'll tell you what, if I had five minutes with a politician and, and tried to tell him this, I reckon I'd go from 40,000 parts per million to 100,000 parts per million because I'm just so angry about 
they're not ignorant. I just don't think no. that, that they've had the time to sit down and that's where somehow we, we've got to create enough people who are singing the song that one day they'll realise, hey, uh, I should give somebody some time. Well, and isn't that interesting how we've got mainstream media who every time, and it's every night basically on the news, there's something about climate change. It doesn't matter how you cut cut it, they'll find something. But they always come up with a picture of a chimney stack um, belching out um, clouds of steam. But they think it's, they make it almost a black tinge. So it's it's clouds of, clouds of coal dust is what they're trying to put out there. It's just obscene. Well, that, that's right. But what's interesting, Don, is, um, and, and, you know, I stress this in, in my talks, that um, when, when we go and breathe out 40,000 parts per million CO2 and there's about 417 thereabouts in the atmosphere, can you see it? And, uh, you know, those are the sorts of questions we've got to say to people, well, no, I can't see it. Well, how come they're blaming all of these chimneys um, for belching out all of the so-called pollution? Well, if there's dust in it, you know, if there's particulate matter in it, okay, well, that's pollution. Mm. But the majority of the stuff we get shown on TV is simply steam. Well, go and boil your pot or boil a billy and have a look at what comes out of that. You know, just do some basic physics. Great teaching opportunity for kids. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, it, I, I just hope that uh, we learn the technique fast enough. And I think our children can become our greatest allies with some very simple physics experiments in the kitchen. So perhaps you, uh, we, we should go back to uh, what's earlier in your presentations about uh, William Happer and Van Wingarden's um, mm. assessments. They've done some great work. And the kicker for me was when I learned that uh, the models that have come out from uh, various outfits, um, they were models of each gas in isolation, each greenhouse gas in isolation in a dry atmosphere in a laboratory environment. They weren't in a mixed atmosphere um, with, you know, as Happer and co uh, modelled and then uh, observed in a real mixed atmosphere. So the key key is, is this your understanding, Ian? The key is the effect of these um, five main greenhouse gases in a mixed environment is um, way, way overstated because yeah. of their because of their testing. Yeah, well, and, and that's absolutely right, Don. But what I find amazing is that if you want to go and do proper science, you come up with a theory, you go out and, and you model it, and uh, you do your best at modelling it, and, uh, and then you come up with your conclusion, and then you go and expose it to some real analyses. Now, this is one of the things that really convinces me that these two guys know what they're talking about because... They went and predicted what the uh, amount of radiant heat would be uh, over the Sahara at, what, about 40-odd degrees. Um, then they also did it um, over the Mediterranean, and they also did it over Antarctica, and they produced yep. three totally different curves of the, of the frequency at which this energy was radiated back to the atmosphere. And then they did it with a, uh, a satellite. And, and they're mirror images of one another. You know, the, these guys are very, very competent. And the fact that the IPCC can't, can't disagree with them, it's just they're just not saying so, is appalling. Mm. And so looking at um, that data and then flicking over to um, CH4 and um, N2O yeah. Yeah. on that, uh, on the, I, I, the frequency curves, yeah. you know, 
even doubling CO2, doubling um, nitrous oxide, doubling CH, uh, CH4, you can hardly see the difference. I know. I know. No, it's appalling. And Look, so, I, I, I had no idea it was that stark that the, the true evidence just utterly destroys the narrative that's out there. So, so why would you think that this, in fact, all recent administrations in New Zealand since probably 2002, in fact, 1998, have been trying to demonise ruminant agriculture in this country? Why do you think that is? I think they've got a motive. It, because the way I see it is the way it's been sold to New Zealanders, we're the bogeyman, we're the problem. Yeah. Um, and in fact, so it basically takes half the heat that to use that term in inverted comments off the uh, rest of society. Because well, if, the, if the full notion, if, if CO2 was a problem, and I accept we, we debate that, um, all of it would be into CO2 equivalents and it would all go inside the mums and dads costs and industries cost of this country and, and ruminant animals would be off the hook. So what I'm saying is it looks like they have a, a way to sort of say, let's put 50% of it onto the the in the, the, the animals and their owners that can't defend themselves. Yeah. But and, I, would, I, I would say, Don, why are we even talking about penalties? Uh, uh, in mm. fact, I, the question is, why are we even dignifying this whole debate, knowing what we know? That's that's another angle, isn't it? Why Why do we even dignify the politics of this? Yeah. clearly there is no need but but that's the game we have to be in we have to we have to push back on this stuff hmm so it's it's interesting uh, yeah this the size of the methane pie and the nitrous oxide pie in the New Zealand uh, sense is so minuscule it's it's not worth talking about is that no, it, it's so small and I ask when I speak to groups I, I get the youngest people in the group to come up because they've got the best eyes and see if they can see the difference. And, and some of them look at me to, to say, well, where's the line that you're talking about? Is there is there a difference? The blip is so small that yes. people just can't see the impact. Um, and, 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 and when you're talking to folk and showing them this, you know, the scales come off their eyes. And, mm. uh, and that's, that's one of the real motivations for me is to allow people to have a glimpse at, at what I've been saying. And, uh, and, and that's why I, I, I talk to groups because it's just an exciting experience for me. Yeah. So, listeners, we are talking about these models by Happer and William Weinbin Garden, which have proven so accurate that yeah. the output from their models and the yeah. output from satellites completely coincide. Yeah. We are not able to see any difference. Ah. And yet, we, in New Zealand, we have the same people, Susie Wiles and Co., the ones who did the COVID modeling yeah. for us. They are the same ones that have now very conveniently just eased into climate modeling. Isn't it amazing? I mean, beginning to think consultancy and modeling are possibly the most lucrative, or in fact, the only professions left in New Zealand where you can make any money. Yeah. Just keep out, you know, pushing out research with more and more outlandish models. Forget to mention that carbon dioxide is just four parts out of every 10,000 and project decarbonization. Yeah, yeah. But what, what's sad in all of this, Jasper, is that as farmers, We've got to work with truth every day. Yeah. If you go and put water in your diesel, you know you're going to have a problem. Mm. Um, but people in the in academia who are getting paid out of our salaries and, and our wages 
they can put effectively, I know it's metaphorical, but they can go and put water in diesel and be forgiven for it. Mm. You know, mm. and that's just appalling. Um, I mean, and, none and, of them will ever will lose any money and there'll be uh, farmers this year close to well over half of the, you know, dairy farming. And I, I would say even sheep and beef fortunes are dwindling who yeah. could actually end up working the whole year for very little to show for it. Uh, yeah, How yeah. often does that happen to these modelers, these bureaucrats? Yeah. Well, well, that's true. But Jespreet, you know, I often wondered, how do we take this message to the urban folk? And, and it yeah. dawned on me not long ago. Every house that's built in New Zealand is built on a block of dirt that once had trees on it. So we've permanently destroyed the forests in those parts mm. of the world, right? Okay. Mm. Where where does where do all the ablutions go from from houses? You know, they basically go into a municipal treatment system for the majority of the country. Mm. And why is it then that farmers seem to get so much focus put on them? For mm -hmm. using a block of dirt and, and having some overland flow, and let's face it, um, th there definitely have been farmers over the years. Yep, we've been poor operators. Being good stewards, right? Mm -hmm. But there are people in town that aren't good stewards either. You know, there's stuff that goes down the drains that should never go down the drains. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the TV crews who go out to farm that, that try to bash the farmer. But it needs to be realised that without agriculture, this country's got no future. And while farmers do need to do due diligence and do it properly, and, and my experience is that farmers, good farmers, just love working together and solving problems and working in a, in a conjunction with regional councils. Historically, you know, I, 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 I know for myself, and I've seen other farmers do it too, farmers love to work with good people to solve problems to, to make their farms more sustainable. That has been my experience in over 40 years, and I'm sure yours is the same, Don. Just yeah, it is. It, it, it is, and it's interesting. Um, I, I remember doing radio interviews way back 15 years ago, and I, one was on Radio New Zealand, and I said, oh, the difference is everything farmers does is um, like going naked in public, but in urban environments, it's flush and forget. And it's under tarmac and it goes to a tank somewhere off site. Um, and that's the difference. And of course, Ian, we do have the RMA, which is a bit of a, a problem. Yeah. Um, everyone, in terms of point source discharge, so stuff out the end of a pipe, it was pretty much industrial and urban um, sort of issues uh, to be to be solved. But that wasn't good enough for the regulator. They needed to have a catch-all. So they then uh, attacked on a cumulative effect. Um, so that means if you're at the headwaters of the waterway to the sea, you're all all in this together. All guilty. You're all guilty or not. And yeah. so that's the catch-all, and that's that's where we are today, sadly. But I agree. Um, no one should be wantonly doing stuff to their environment that they know can be improved or done better. No one should do that. And I don't see farmers um, you know, desecrating their, their own um land wantonly uh yeah the environment does throw a lot at us in terms of weather patterns and stuff but um you just suck it up but uh, of course those people with the cameras and digital cameras made it quite easy to um live stream stuff nowadays yep yeah well th there's a there's a very good parable that every man should consider and that's uh, only do to other people what you'd have them do to you yeah. And, um, you know, we, we aren't doing it, we're not doing justice to our future if we don't treat farmers fairly. And, and that's, that's not what's happening. And it's just an appalling situation. Well, and, and, you know, we've, 
sorry, just briefly interrupting. We um we've had many um of shows now where we're talking about our farmer representatives who just won't front this stuff at a hard edge. They just won't. And it's you wonder what it is. They say, oh, but in the marketplace, we need to do this to get our get our products into the marketplace. Well, actually, I don't think that's genuine. I think it's it's mm. been brainwashed into um, our sustainability offices and our marketing offices and all sorts of things at these cooperatives. And you think, why do we employ them? They they're not they're not being genuine. No, no, no. Look, the world. Uh, what we feed something like forty million people with our exports. Correct. Oh, yeah. I think we, we could probably feed double that if we made them uh, the right calorific intake instead of well, well, that, that's over overeating. That's, no, that that's exactly right too. But the thing is, we do have a there's a market out there that wants yeah. our food, and, and I I don't think we should be prostituting ourselves to everybody else's criteria. But you know, some some of the revelations that I think the public need to know about is that the, the deserts, you know, the CSIRO in Australia, they have measured the greening of the dry areas of the planet, and they know that they're getting greener with increasing CO2. Now, I would argue that CO2 hasn't come from us. Uh, it, it's actually come from the oceans as the world slowly warms after a little ice age and CO2 comes out of solution, and that's very easy to show. Um, so that extra CO2 is actually increased our agricultural outputs around the world and and the deserts particularly the fringes of the deserts are getting greener and and that's that's csiro in australia so and the reason for that is of course the the little pores in in this in the leaf um, the stomata um they don't need to stay open for as long to get their their quota of co2 and of course the co2 goes in water comes out well if the little stomata aren't open as long that means they lose less moisture and as a result, these plants can now handle the arid areas better, and that's why it's getting greener. Now, uh, mm. and that's one thing we need to, I think, emphasize: climate change has always happened. The Sahara. We I've watched documentaries, mostly uh, homeschooling my children, about uh, these caves deep within the desert, where there's paintings of creatures which are no longer there within the Sahara. The Sahara was green at one time. Yeah. I had someone recently mentioned to me, oh, but, you know, uh, the climate change is definitely happening here because uh, I see kingfish down here that, that weren't here before. I said, yeah, and it has always happened. I said, you know, there were dinosaurs also here at one point, and that changed. No, 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 but we must be seen to be doing something. And that's when it rankles that where is the cost benefit analysis in all of this for a country that right now the june 23 quarter uh figures benefits data from ministry of social development show that are food parcels because they show the june snapshot of last six years right from 2017 our biggest grants right now are on food and housing and the food one have more than tripled yeah. that's where we are right now facing food insecurity in a what is supposed to be a first world country. We have long, endless waiting lists for our hospitals. We have had people who have missed cancer treatments, more serious, I mean, pressing needs and whatnot. And this is what we are doing. We have hospitals now reporting their emissions, how much, uh, how many boilers have changed, gone from coal to this. And that's that's when it strikes me, this is criminal. Yes. This is not just unconscionable or, you know, wasting public money. This is criminal. 
And Ian Plymer put it very well in his uh, book that I'm still not got through because it's such a tome, nearly 400 pages, Green Murder. Right. It is murder. Yeah. And yeah. it's time we call it out for what this is. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And that's what we're all endeavouring to do. And I think as things get tougher and tougher, I'm hoping that an increasing number of people will be prepared to listen to an alternative narrative. Mm. And I think that's where we, we've got to have what you folk have got with all your replays because it's so easy to say to somebody, look, just go online. You can go back and look up any any um, you know replays on any with any particular theme that you want, and uh, and and play it while you drive to you know to work. Um, that, that's what I'm doing, and uh, the, you you people have got stunning folk on. It's just so easy to. It's almost like just just handing over an envelope and saying, look, have a read of that. You only read, need to read three words. It's called Reality Check Radio. And just go and type that in, and there you are. You got Don and Jaspreet, and uh, you know, wonderful stuff. It's just such a wonderful resource, and we've just got to keep, got to be bold enough to tell people. It's that. What it's that simple. It's that. What you said in the beginning, scrappy, yeah, yeah. and that's yeah, yeah. what it is about. You know, one has to keep. At times, it does get repetitive. We keep repeating the same things, but we have to make the people who are in the you know positions of power positions of influence where they're making these decisions never be able to come back and say we didn't know so you were told that you were told that on multiple occasions it's been the same thing over the last three years of the medical insanity and it will be the same thing over the climate issue i i know the newspaper mainstream narrative goes like oh the covid deniers are not in climate deniers no actually we've not it is the critical thinkers have remained critical thinkers and time and again, pushing the same message out, no matter how repetitive, will put these people, you know, in a position, never be able to get away from sort of just saying, oh, but we never knew this is what our model said. No, you knew you yeah. chose to ignore it. Right, Don? And we have like we literally have written proof, written statements of these people choosing yeah. to willfully ignore it. Yeah, yeah. But what's so easy, Jaspreet, is that the information that flies contrary to what they're telling us is just so uh, copious, such copious amounts. For example, Antarctica. You know, here we were, if, if I went back, say, four or five years ago, uh, and we were told Antarctica shrinking. Well, I, I just went on and, and found a site that gave the area of the ice in, in Antarctica in winter and summer. And it graphed it. And that started in 1979. And uh, so I compared 40 years of data. I compared what, how much, how much area was covered by ice in Antarctica in 1979. And then in 40 years later, so 2019. And, uh, and I realized that 90% of the world's ice is in Antarctica. And I could not believe there was more in 2019 than there was in uh, 1979 and what's amazing is that the amount of ice that shrinks and grows every year is an area over twice the size of australia now as an aussie i once drove from perth to sydney took five days doing 600 miles we talked about in those days 600 miles a day it's over 10 hours driving right take five hours to fly across australia now if you do that across Australia and, and, and up, you know, you end up with a massive amount of ice that is changing. Now, 
How easy is it to go and get a TV crew down there to go and find melting ice? If, if it grows and shrinks by that much, they can easily go and find that ice melting. But the scandal is they tell us, and they tell our kids particularly, the ice is melting, but they fail to tell it that it's going to regrow. And, and I know, Don, recently you did a, um, one of your topics was, well, what's happening down in Antarctica right now? Well, I, I went and ran those photos to see how much the ice was changing. And I dare say every year it's a different photo because by virtue of wind, I suppose, and tides and probably volcanic activity on the western side, I understand there's a lot of volcanic yeah. activity on the western side. Um, but even this year, which which is, has shown quite a significant decline versus normal, um, you can barely see the difference when you go and compare two photographs, one from 1979 with, with this year. Yeah, there's a reduction and a significant reduction, but you can barely see it by eye. And let's face it, if it hasn't happened over 40 years, one blip's hardly going to make a difference. You know, one swallow doesn't make a summer. So uh-huh. I, I don't think there's a case to answer, quite frankly. Well, well, no, they're looking for that case to answer. They're looking for for something. And, of course, recently that that discussion was around uh, i think it even talked about the moisture in the in the atmosphere down there and uh and how the penguins were not quite being able to flap like they needed to flap okay. and dry themselves so the question that wasn't raised by uh, us on, or even in my comments on it was around perhaps there is um a huge amount of um water in the atmosphere caused by the tongan uh, volcano of 18 okay. months ago and that's now come out the discussions that I've been reading, it is, it is m- times multiple times what they originally thought in the atmosphere. But again, to me, all this is a ruse. It's yeah. uh, it's very clear that CO two is not the bogeyman of the world. CH four from our animals is not a bogeyman. N two O from um, fertilizers and uh, and and animal pee is not an issue. Uh, but we're going to spend trillions over the world to try and solve a non-problem. Yeah, mm. no, that, that's exactly right. But you know what? What is is more frightening is that when you listen to people who are who are experts in the field, like uh, Professor Happer and uh, Mike Professor Michael Kelly mm. and uh, Steve Coonan, who was Obama's chief science advisor, you know mm. th- those guys they don't agree with the narrative. And, and in fact, it was Professor Michael Kelly. I think it was Oxford. Oxford or Cambridge. Cambridge. Yeah, professor over there. And he says, we're heading into an alarming future, but it's got nothing to do with Mm. climate change. I sat through a meeting here in Invercargill last year. We had uh, our climate czar, Rod Carr, come down here. And uh, number one, most of these meetings, they now no longer take live questions from the audience. You're given these, Uh, you know, uh, you have to log on to the software and you put your question. And if the... If, you know, fortune smiles on you, yours might just be asked somehow. It has never smiled upon me. But someone else's, I think they must have had an overwhelming number of similar questions there. And they finally asked him, Rodkar, you know, people are saying that there was up to 5,000 parts per million in the past. And he just thundered in the room. But there was one important difference that we are missing. We were not there then. And I thought, that makes no sense. Most people around the room clapped. Now, you were talking just now about this 40-year period uh, looking at Antarctica. What is even 40 years? 
a blip of time when you look at the earth how long has it been here anything from 4 to 6 billion years depending on what records you look at what is 40 years or even 40000 in you know 4 5 6 billion years of earth's existence how do we have we have to reach the stage that we think we are that important that uh, we can have an impact we can control the climate we have now harvard you know setting up with these solar dimming programs and what not so there's another breed of university students phd's that will be coming out with also i don't know really flash programs to control the sun mm. but god we still can't feed the world we still can't get enough doctors in time where they are needed but we've decided to bankrupt ourselves doing this yeah that's, that's true. where the pity of it but desperate um they they use the, the evidence that we've got around us today to condemn co2 and i would argue that the evidence around us today is is just absolutely endorsement of the value of co2 so go back 40 years if you can't see a trend in 40 years they're claiming they can if you can't see a trend in 40 years give up what what's your argument about you know put the truth on the table and and if we've got academics over here that refute what professor happer and professor wangarden are saying we'll have a public debate about it put the put the evidence on it get the right people we, we all deserve to know the truth so let's facilitate the truth and that's what I'm trying to do but they should be getting professor happer and wangarden i know covid covid stopped that but um, mm. that's what we need to be doing Well that's true and all of, all their output is available online the stuff that we need to have out is available online I know there's nothing better than actually having them in person and be able to face to you know have a face to face the problem we've got in New Zealand is mainstream media uh, ignores this so these sort of people like the plague we have Dr Dr Tom Sheehan here recently no mainstream media uh, coverage whatsoever so clearly the narrative doesn't suit uh, the agenda and of course I'm aware that um the minister for climate change James Shaw does know that uh methane for instance is even in the IPCC's um AR6 report uh, admitted they admit that it is overstated by a factor of 3 to 4 its severity in terms of warming and yet the Happer and Van Wingarden papers will tell you it's overstated by significantly more like probably uh it's got a GWP a global warming potential of less than 1 So no one wants to know that the minister does know this because it's in front of him we know it's in front of him but he will not acknowledge it because that do, doing uh the the policy uh that they're working on was from AR4 from what was that just read about 2006 2007 yeah Seven. so they're working on yeah. science that's what yeah 50 years yeah. old a long time ago and they know they know that that's uh, disingenuous but they refuse to change and of course in we've only learned in recent months that New Zealand signed up to a global methane hub a pledge in Chile last year with a hunt there's now 153 countries signed into it and our lead company in New Zealand Fonterra is party to it i mean we know all the stuff now and it it just it it winds me up a lot as you can tell so you know uh, all pair i think we'll um we've had a lot of your time i think we need to probably wrap this there's a lot more we can say your we haven't done your 70 odd slides complete justice but we've just about got there but the key thing for me in the last 25 years if there was a green wash going on in this country let alone the world 
it's climate change and it's the it's it's the peak greenwash and uh it's the name of our show yeah well this whole thing highlights that there's a bigger agenda going on and the only way that we can change it is to have enough people when the people rise up with evidence and say we're not getting told the truth then the politicians will listen and they seem to think that they're going to go along with they, what they deem to be the majority of people who believe this narrative. Well, we've got a job to change that. Mm. And, uh, and I want to thank you, folks, for being being part of the uh, all pulling on the oars together with this canoe going in the right direction. And we've just got to keep doing it and help others to get on board. Yeah, well, we're, we're grateful for your input today and uh, we may have to get you back. Uh, let's hope we can get... Uh, a groundswell of uh, of people pushing the same way. Yeah, definitely. And if anybody uh, says we'd like to have that that Macintosh guy on, and uh, is he prepared to to commute? You know, we'll, we'll take the weekend and and travel to a forum. Yeah, uh, where we can share this stuff. It's just too important. Yeah, well, I think that would be gratefully received. You just might not have any days left in your diary for the next couple of years. Well, um, that, that's fine. But before the election, I prefer to do most of it before then and help the way <laughs> educate these guys. Uh, 100%. All yeah. right. Okay, Ian. Well, thank you very much. And um, we'll we'll be in touch, no doubt. We'll yeah, yeah, good. Uh, and, good. We, and we will share your link as best we can on our, uh, our show um, notes. Excellent. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. Thanks. Yep. All right. Ta-da. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference.